KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you for giving us the morning.
Yeah, thank you, Lizzie, for giving us that one. That's Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. The song is called Portrait of an Artist as a Young Woman, a.k.a. Thank you. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's about six minutes after 11 p.m. on the 23rd of October. And yeah, Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, a.k.a. Tony Caraldo. We'll be playing a little bit of music from Lizzie and Tony for the next hour or so. We have some uh, additional music uh, lined up uh, for later in the program that I came across a little bit earlier today. As a matter of fact, it's going to work in really well with our interview with Jan Irvin, which is coming up in about uh, just under an hour, 55 minutes or so. So all that stuff uh, coming up in just a little while. So stick around, okay? It is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We do this every Monday from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. Talk about the strange and the unusual and the fantastic. And tonight, no different. But before we get there, let's uh, do our duties, okay? Thanks, as always, to Debbie Johnson, Free Range Radio Theater. Doing great stuff. Don't miss it next week, as always. Debbie will be presenting Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, the uh, original radio presentation, and she does it every Halloween, and it's an amazing thing. We were talking about it off the air um, when Debbie was still here at the station, uh, that original broadcast, I think, what you say, 1938. Anyway, amazing stuff uh, that was done some 70 years ago now. So next week, as always, the Halloween broadcast of Free Range Radio Theater. Check it out and listen to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Okay, before that, uh, Kelvin and Jason, as always, doing it up. Jazz plus blues equals unabashed chaos. Tech Radio, always informative before that. Jeff Wheeler starts things out on Monday from 3 until 5 with Uncommon Light. Wonderful music from Jeff every week on Monday afternoons. And he'll be in actually tonight after me. I think uh, the rumor is that Jeff's going to be rolling in here about 2 a.m. to play some music for you for the next few hours. So uh, you can hear him in a deja vu appearance tonight, or I guess uh, early tomorrow morning, playing some music after Radio Orbit finishes up, okay? All right, big thanks to uh, my good friend Star Newland, Dr. Michael Heisen. Last week, wonderful program, dolphins, whales, and a very amazing, actually interesting, unexpected tale uh, involving the U.S. Navy. Believe it or not, this time they're not the bad guys. So uh, if, you're, uh, uh, if you missed it, check it out uh, on the web. You can hit a load of what I'm talking about. Okay, We also had the music, uh, the wonderful music of Larry Norager, who also is my webmaster, as a matter of fact. But Larry's an amazing musician, and he showed us some of his skills last week. Thanks, Larry, for making that wonderful music. I look forward to more of it. I know you got lots of it tucked away over there. You just don't like to share it. So anyway, we'll hear more from Larry in the future. Thanks to him for making great music and uh, also for doing the wonderful work that he does at MikeHagan.com. All right? And speaking of MikeHagan.com, the archives for last week's program are up and available to you and whoever else might like to uh, check them out. And you can also go to the music page, and you can find information about the musicians uh, that have been on the program over the last... Oh, a year or so, including Larry Norger, of course, from last week, and Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, who've been featured on the program once or twice before. They're wonderful people and friends of mine um, making their home here in Columbia now. And we'll play some music in just another few minutes from, uh, from Lizzie and Tony. But all that stuff's available on the web. You can go there and surf around a little bit and find all kinds of interesting things over at MikeHaganHagan.com. All right? Oh, also, um, a big thank you. I mean, a huge thank you to Dr. Miguel Jose Yacoman 
and his team at the University of Texas at Austin. The work they are doing with silver nanoparticles is remarkable. It's potentially world-changing. I'm so pleased that you took the time to share with us last week, and um, we just applaud you for the work that you're doing. All right, and I'll follow up for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a big conference going on in December that uh, Dr. Yakuman was talking about. So we'll be doing updates on the progress of this work as uh, those updates become available. All right. If you missed it, one more time, the archives, www.mikehagan.com. Just uh, find a way to sneak over to the archives page and you can download the program or stream it or something like that. All right. Okay, tonight, Jan Irvin, one of the two men who wrote a book that's called Astrotheology and Shamanism. And I was introduced to them a few weeks ago, but I was blown away by the depth and the volume of the information that these guys had put together. And they actually did a video that preceded the book. And the name of the video is also the name of their website. And it's called Pharmacratic Inquisition. Uh, actually, the, uh, the video is called The Pharmacratic Inquisition. But uh, on the web, you can find information about Jan Irvin at www.pharmacratic.com dash inquisition dot com all right pharma p h a r m a c r a t i c pharmacratic dash inquisition dot com and you're going to be blown away by Jan Irvin in about forty eight minutes okay so stick around for that I won't uh, give too much away but we'll be talking about history we'll be talking about shamanism we'll be talking about plants and entheogens we'll be talking about scams and conspiracy <laughs> and uh, you know, the way the world really works, I guess. It will be probably a controversial show, even for orbit standards. So just stick around for that, all right? Midnight coming up, Jan Irvin from the Pharmacratic Inquisition. We'll also be uh, here, and I'm not sure, you know, Lizzie and Tony were going to come down here, but I know Lizzie's a little bit under the weather, so I may just try to get them on the phone here in a few minutes, and uh, we'll see if we can chat with them. But if not, I'll tell you what we were going to talk about if they were here anyway because there's an event that's coming up on Saturday that's going to be a lot of fun and I'm just going to tell you what we're going to be doing for a little Halloween party on the 28th of October. All right, if you're a regular listener of this program, you've heard uh, their music before and we'll hear some more right now, I guess, and I'll see if I can get Lizzie and Tony on the phone. Uh, as I said, that first song we started off with was called Thank You and... We'll hear another one right now. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, www.mikehagan.com. And once again, uh, Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. This one is called Rope Me In and Smoke Me. It's from an album released earlier this year on Appleseed Records. I Pledge Allegiance to Myself is the name of it. One more time, Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. 
West and the White Buffalo. That's called Rope Me In and Smoke Me. And uh, we'll be howling it up this Saturday night, the 28th of October, down at the Tiger Hotel. There's a wonderful event coming up, the first annual Halloween Ball. We'll be talking with Tony Caraldo about that in just a few minutes. I just got off the phone with Tony. He's on his way down here walking the dog and uh, bringing a friend of his from New York down. And uh, so we'll chat with them in a few minutes when they show up. Should be waltzing in here in just a few minutes. In the meantime, hello to everybody out there listening 
over the airwaves or over the web, live or otherwise. We are streaming right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to all the girls and guys over there for making it happen for us every Monday night, live on the web, so people that are uh, not necessarily in our neck of the woods here can also hear the program. Uh, Thanks also to Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing amazing stuff on the web. He's got great stuff to share with the listeners as well. All you got to do is pop on over there to MikeHagan.com and take a look around and see what Larry's got up there for you this week. Um, it's a wonderful place to uh, share information and get to know people. We've got the forum, which is one of my favorite parts of the website, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, because it's a great place for community to sort of gather and develop uh, is wonderful, and we've been sort of busy, and there's some interesting topics being discussed over there. There's a live chat room that's up and active tonight, just like it is every Monday night. Just go over to MikeHagan.com and then click on the live chat link, and you can listen into the program over the Internet and chat with people who are also listening, regardless of where they might be while they're listening, okay? All right, as a matter of fact, we'll peek in there now and again for questions and comments as we move along in the program tonight. And I will give you my contact information while we're at it here, email address orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com, orbitradio at AOL.com, and of course you can uh, you can contact me directly from the website at www.mikehagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. All right, so um, let's see. We've got Jan Irvin tonight. If you want to get a leg up, hop on over to the web and check out a website that's called pharmacratic-inquisition.com. We're going to be talking about the pharmacratic inquisition, as it were. We'll also be talking about Jan Irvin and Andrew Rudiet's book called Astrotheology and Shamanism. And I'm very excited for the show tonight. I came across Jan Irvin just a few weeks ago. And it was speaking of the forum, that's actually what happened. There's a young man who posts on the forum over there. His name is Alexander, or he goes by Alexander. And uh, on one of the threads over there, he put this link up and said, hey, Mike, check these guys out. If you haven't seen them, it's pretty amazing. And I went over there to the uh, to the website, and sure enough, I was impressed and uh, got a hold of Jan, and he agreed to do the program. So we'll be doing that in about 40 minutes. But if you're interested in, uh, well, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in religion, if you're interested in drugs, uh, regardless of your position on them, of course, everything's a drug. If you're interested in um, you know, business, government, this sort of thing, we're going to touch on all that stuff tonight with Jan Irvin. And if you want to get a little bit of a head start, you can go over to pharmacratic-inquisition.com and sniff around over there a little bit, and you'll find out, um, you'll find out what's, uh, what's going on. Anyway, as I told you, um, I was expecting guests, and certainly they have arrived. So we've got Tony Corraldo and Greg. Uh, I don't even know what Greg's last name is, but we can let him tell us that. He, actually, Greg doesn't tell anyone his last name. That's actually what I heard. So uh, hold on, Tony. You're on mic two. That's that hey. one right there. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. And let's see. That's three for Greg when he wants to take a seat. All right. So uh, and the Dharma dog. I don't have a mic for him that doesn't doesn't go that low. Oh. Anyway, he can speak up. We know if he likes. Over here. All right, uh, everybody, my friends in the studio, Tony Corraldo is uh, the lesser half. I shouldn't say that. That wasn't very nice, but I just figured Lizzie's listening. So, no, he, he's, he's an equal half of Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, and uh, he's 
been in and about the studio and the station uh, on and off for the last few months since Lizzie and Tony moved to town here. But anyway, they just uh, walked down from their place uh, here in town. And hello. Hi. How are you? Great. It's good to be here. I know. A little chilly out there, huh? Yeah, it's a bit chilly. Um, just we walked here. I thought you were gonna say it's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. It's after eleven. I can do it. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Anyway, and Greg. Yes. Yes. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Now, Greg. Uh, okay, let's um, background real fast. Lizzie okay. West, Tony Caraldo. They have a band. They call themselves Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. They have a recently released album back in April, I think, on Appleseed Records that's called right. "I Pledge Allegiance to Myself." Yep. Uh, they live in Colombia now, although they move around quite a bit. They're sort of the, using this as your central uh, base of operations. Yeah, our central, definitely central location here. And we're also working uh, in New York, too, with Greg. Aha, so this yeah. is how Greg comes in. That's where I come in. And Greg, <laughs> and, but you're here in Colombia now. You must be here for the big party. Yeah, I'm here for the big events on Saturday. All right, when you're not partying with them, what, what's your uh, role with, uh, with the band? Uh, well, we... We Greg connected. Plays. Yeah, we we connected this summer. Uh, actually, over the past year, I kind of reconnected with Lizzie. We we were old friends, uh, and we reconnected, and we started talking a lot of just about the ideas, the things that we're interested in working on, and we started to just get the sense that at least we're you know on the same wavelength. But then, come August, uh, sort of serendipity led to them to upstate New York, where I was. Where I'm living, mm-hmm. and we uh, we started an uh, an artist in residency program uh, in the house that I live in, in, in New York. Yeah, in New York. Ah, so yeah. this is sort of maybe an inspiration for the project here. Well, well vice or vice yeah. versa. They're, they're kind of in keeping with each other. They're part of the same mm-hmm. vision that we're kind of developing right now, where where we can set up cooperative uh, arts. Uh, Centers basically where where artists can come live for a month and do an artist in residency that's very active, proactive in the community, working with the community, and performing with and and for the community. How mm-hmm. cool! Well, that's awesome, and I mean we're lucky to have to have you guys uh, choose Columbia. Actually. And we're lucky to have Columbia. It's a great place. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. It's it's a two way street for sure. But there's good stuff going on here, and you guys are certainly a part of it. So yeah, yeah, it's just my. Third day here, but uh, it's been very exciting. You've been hanging around downtown, walking around a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. Ninth Street, one of my favorite uh, yeah. places in the country, as a matter of fact. All right, look, um, the Halloween Ball. Let's give out a website here, www.howloween, as in H-O-W-L-O-W-E-E-N-B-A-L-L, HalloweenBall.com. You can link there from my site as well, by the way, on the front page there. If you just page down a little bit, you'll see a link to Tony and, uh, uh, and Lizzie's site, lizziewestlife.com. And then from there, you can click wherever else you need to get. But at any rate, okay, the Halloween ball is coming up. It's Saturday, the 28th of October. That's and right. what's the nature of this event? This is a, a create-your-reality ball, a character ball, kind of based on a novella that Lizzie's been writing the past month here. Um, it's one in a series of books that she's meaning to write called The Wonderful Adventures. And uh, this, uh, the ball is kind of um, represents a part of the story in a way, too. It's the eternal ball, eternal ball of all ages. And uh, there's going to be groups of different characters. Um, you can learn more about it at the website, howloweenball.com. Um, but it's going to be a, a great show, lots of uh, mystery guests and uh, 
the mystery guest local to Columbia, who uh, <laughs> I think we can say right now, um, uh, Michael Cochran mm. will be one, Bartholomew Bean, uh, Carla Lewis, Prelad, <laughs> and Hillary Scott will all be making guest appearances. That is actually the first public announcement. That's so true. those of you who are listening, uh-huh. should be very honored. See that? Yeah. A yep. scoop. A scoop. Well, you know, scoop right you know, here in Radio I, Orbit. You know, it's amazing, actually. Uh, <laughs> not, not, to, not to lessen the value of this scoop, but I scoop things all the time here, and nobody ever even pays attention. So, anyway, hopefully people are paying attention right now. <laughs> people are paying attention, though. <laughs> Tonight the they are. are going out there. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, yeah, I'm, I've been really looking forward to it myself, the, the, the novella that, uh, that Lizzie is writing. I was screaming at her today. I said, I, where's, my, where's my chapter two? And she said to me, well, did you buy your ticket? <laughs> 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 I, I forked over the yeah. ten bucks. So, so I'm looking forward. Have to you it. gotten your uh, your e- your e- email with the chapter two? No, no. You have it. Did you just no. do it today? Just when she was down here, her and oh, Laura right. came down here at about. They came down here at about nine forty-five. Oh right. And okay. they were anticipating that the show was at ten o'clock. Yeah. And my show starts at eleven. So, and Lizzie's a little bit under the weather, I think. So, yeah, uh, she's been. She's in bed. We were gonna maybe make a call to her uh, in bed, but I don't think she has a phone next to her. Well, um, I was when, when I called you. I thought maybe I'd get her. I wasn't sure who I'd get, but regardless, we want her to be healthy for the weekend. So. Yeah, definitely. So she needs her rest, and she's writing also too. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the 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 story. Even though I haven't read chapter two, chapter one made me want to read chapter two. It's really good, and I'm yeah. looking forward to hearing. And this. just to add a little bit of intrigue to this, the 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 ball isn't actually just um, sort of related to the story. The ball is actually in the story that Lizzie is writing. And uh, it's just, you can call it a create your reality ball. It is like a, an opportunity for people to come and create this reality. Mm-hmm. But really it is, the more I've worked on it, the more I get the feeling it's just about creating magic. And it's mm-hmm. going to be a really magical night. It's going to be mm-hmm. really like special. <laughs> yeah, hey, magic is real. I keep yeah. trying to tell people that. You know, It's true. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got the arts co-op. That's something that you guys are working on. Mm-hmm. You bought it. You bought a place here in town recently. Mm-hmm. North Village. And this is going to be part of that project. Somehow you're going to right. Gonna this morph is a benefit for the co-op that we're establishing here uh-huh. um, in Columbia, as well as what we're doing um, in New York. And um, our goal is to have ours here um, and grow uh, the co-op, and then. Also on the East Coast in New York and Pine Plains, uh, up in the Hudson Valley of New York State. It's gorgeous. And then um, have a house and a rest stop in California or someplace on the West Coast. So. Right on. Yeah. All right, well, look, um, let's play another song, and then we'll come back and chat a little bit more. Cool. Okay? All right, everybody, this is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. I've got Tony and Greg in the house. And uh, we're going to play another song from I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. This is one of my faves, actually. It's called Looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 1. Back in just a minute, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. In about a half hour, we'll have Jan Irvin from the Pharmacratic Inquisition. Stick around. He'll blow your mind. Looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 1. Maybe they fought last night, but they're together now. Maybe they're not that nice, but they'll be nice now. I remember the position that I was once in, and I wish I could be there now. Oh, how I wish I could be there now.
and locked the fences. I went and hid the wine. Still you worked your way through the fences. You went and took the wine. You took the wine. You didn't see me sitting by the cases. The garden grin and smoking hands. My tan pants and my polished helmet. Map of all my plans. I remember the position I was once in. I wish I could be there now. Oh, how I wish I could be there now. I go out, let it go in. In the morning on South Tremaine. The dog is just a metaphor, and Whitman is he just a frame? Is he just a everybody, it's Mike. We're back at you. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, that was Looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 1. I'm looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 2, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so, that, so, Lizzie, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Tony, we're back in the studio with Tony Caraldo, a.k.a. the White Buffalo, and, uh, and Greg. 
from uh, New York who's here visiting with us and is going to be joining us for our big party on Saturday, the Halloween ball. So, okay. all right, let's say hi again. And, and you guys, Greg, clarify mm-hmm. a little bit about w- what you're doing actually. Are you going to be touring with the band and, and performing yet all? Because tell me, I'm, I know you're a musician as well. So. Right. Um, the degree to which I'll be touring with them is, is as of yet undetermined. I w- recording, I w- maybe? Uh, possibly recording. That'd be great, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that element, as far as how much time I'll be spending with the band and how much time I'll be spending back on my home front is is kind of going to work itself out over the over the period that we're going. So um, so anyway, I do play the bass and the guitar as well, and hopefully I'll start doing some singing as well. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, we, we, um, f- uh, for the people who missed out, uh, we had a little gathering at my place uh our place, I should say, on Saturday, and there was lots of good music, and I heard, I heard some voices from a lot of people actually. <laughs> yeah. I was listening, you know. So that was a lot of fun. There was some fire being spun and Holy some cow. bellies being danced. It was great. <laughs> it was good. All right, so uh, new music, Tony. What's going on? Are you guys writing right now, or? Yeah, we um, we actually wrote a new song while we were in uh, our August residency in New Year. Is that the one you gave me? Okay, yeah. I'm not going to give away the title. <laughs> ah, okay. I want to give it... A, can I say it when I play it? Yeah. Oh, but that one, yeah. Yeah. But not the new one. New, new, new one. Oh, the new one. Right, oh, right. Oh, man. No, this, this is the one... That we recorded this uh, here, actually, in Colombia a few weeks ago at Pete Skolka's studio um, with, actually, co-op members and uh, people that we've uh, just met here, and it came out sounding really good, and we're really happy with it. Um it's actually the song that they uh, wrote and uh, arranged right. in Pine Plains, New York, and then they came here to then lay the tracks down. Yeah, mm-hmm. we started writing it, um, I think, probably while we were here in July or something. It was We we travel with two four-leggeds, and one of those four-leggeds, his name is Spartacus, and he um, has a tendency to whine and cry a lot. So... Um, you know, we're sitting in the Jeep rolling down the highway, and uh, you start getting out the ukulele and start singing a song to him. Oh, Spidey, it's all right. <laughs> so, um, in hopes that that would help calm him down. <laughs> so, it's a dedication to him. All right, we'll play that, actually, in just a few minutes here, actually, on the way out with these guys. I'm peeking on the web here. Like I said, I'm, I, I get to... I, I get excited when I go to the chat page and all these people are talking about what we're talking about. But anyway, chapter one rocked. So somebody out there oh, sweet. Uh, just, read, just read Did chapter, you get chapter one. chapter two? I don't think they got chapter two yet. But okay. they, so uh, I should there mention... Are people, there are people that are going there right now as we're, as we're talking about it. Right on. As incentive to get tickets to the ball, you get, uh, you get free access to the entire novel as it unfolds. Right, right. Chapter one is just a teaser for the public, but you know, if you want to get in on it, you've got to buy a ticket. Yeah, and yeah. you can also buy a subscription to the novella on the website as Okay, well. now, now there's something else going on that I wanted to ask you about that's sort of related to this, and I guess it has to do with this, the agency, whatever that is. Now, we're going to have to clarify that because for my listeners, that's going to make them a bit anxious when I say the agency. So, let, so let's clarify what kind of agency we're talking about exactly and what that's about. Well, the agency refers to our um, the anti-fear movement agency, which uh, basically is part of our co-op that's um, our belief in trying to get rid of unnecessary fear um, in our culture by um, finding in ourselves to be less afraid and thus sharing it with the community and 
in working with people. So um, the name kind of may have uh, an aggressive tone to it. But you uh, can consider it, you know, one way of thinking about it as agents of the evolution, mm-hmm. sort of the capital E evolution as the human race and the, our consciousness evolves. Um, there, there are people who are promoting that evolution and then there are people that are holding it back. And we're, we'd like to think that the people that join our ranks are part of the, the, the agents of yes. and for right. the evolution. Right. All right, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the anti-fear movement, I like it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. All right, and the agency's here in town, so watch out, all you other agents, okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see, what else? Um, shows, upcoming shows. We've got the Halloween Ball. Again, mm-hmm. one more time on the web, everybody, if you want to check this out. Uh, H-O-W-L-O-W-E-E-N Ball.com HalloweenBall.com And uh, what else do you have planned for the, for the, for the fall and the winter here? Um, we're going to be in Columbia for um, November in the Midwest Maybe some things in Kansas City and Lawrence and St. Louis And then we're planning on going back east um, in December To get back to um, New York mm-hmm. via you know, Louisville, Pittsburgh, D.C., and whatnot. So um, that's basically our touring plan right now. And then back here, the turn of the year. All right. Greg, how long are you sticking around? I'm sticking around until after the ball, hanging out for a couple of days following as we do some wrap-up and try to uh, gather our our thoughts about the whole event because this is a real, this is mm-hmm. definitely an inaugural event for the agency. It's, a, it's an effort of, on our part to, like, gather energy and, and momentum around this whole idea of bringing people together to, um, you know, in a community, co-oping, working together, sharing resources to produce art and share, you know, and spread ideas that are, you know, in, that we all think are important. Right. We're also trying to um, start um, what's called a, if you're of a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Sure, sure. Um, we're thinking of a Community Supported Arts type box and that yeah that's that's another thing that you can get on on our website the whole idea of, of community supported agriculture is you you buy a share and in, in the uh ag co-op and then whatever they produce you get your right. your share of that and right. the, the whole idea of the arts co-op is the same kind of thing you mm-hmm. you contribute in the beginning of the season and at the end you get you get to reap the harvest and, right. and you know you get a cd a dvd uh, a little book um, lots whatever of the fruits are yeah, work whatever fruits, yeah. Yeah, and it's been a pretty rich harvest so far yeah. so. so it's in its infancy right now with the CS Arts um, box but um, look for that in November actually right. it's at howloweenball.com right now but it's um, we also have more about the agency and the co-op and the Holy Road houses at um, uh, holyroadtours.com okay alright and also uh, the first chapter as we said that novella What's the title again? I always forget. It's called... Of the chapter? Uh, the, yeah. The, the, well, the actual book... The book is called is Eva and the Forgotten Church. Right, and this Eva and the Forgotten Church. Yes, yes. and Part the chapter that. names are hard to remember because they're yeah. so long. <laughs> <laughs> and they have subtitles. <laughs> All right, well... Parenthetical. Uh, right, right. We'll, we'll check it out. We've got a few people that, are, that already have done that, and we've got, a, we've got a thumbs up from at least one guy there on the web. So, uh, right on. So, so check it out. Uh, lots of ways to get there over at my site, MikeHagan.com, yeah. uh, or LizzieWest.com, or HalloweenBall.com, and HolyRoadTours.com. Mm-hmm. So, all right, you guys, great stuff. Tony, you know, I think you're doing great work. Greg, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you're doing great work, good, Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for Radio Orbit. You're yeah. welcome. I, I do it. It's a love. So I'm, I'm glad, yeah. glad we can share. 
that's one of my deals Definitely. too. You know, I'm into sharing information and art, and, and uh, that's the co-op, that's the so. community. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, well, look, we're going to close things out here with Tony and Greg, and then we're going to switch gears. But we'll play one more. This is the new one. It's called Sparty. It's, it's okay. okay. Sparty. <laughs> it's okay. All right, everybody. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Okay. Actually, here. I'm going to play one more song, I think, from Lizzie, so I can take a little bit more time here and get uh, 
a couple things ready for you. But we'll hear one more here. This one is called, I Can See the Mountains from Here. And we're going to be talking to uh, Jan Irvin in Boulder, Colorado in just a few minutes. So this is an appropriate tune to uh, set us up for that. But we'll be back in just a few minutes. I'll do space weather. I'll do a real quick one here when we come back. Uh, And then we'll join Jan Irvin and talk about the Pharmacratic Inquisition. And we'll also discuss his book called Astrotheology and Shamanism. We have lots of interesting things to talk about with Jan. So stick around. In just about 12 minutes, we'll have that. In the meantime, one more from Lizzie and Tony. As I said, this one's called I Can See the Mountains from Here. Be back in just a minute. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. I wore my sun hat when the sky looked like rain Because it helped me to avoid And I went raking up the traces of pain In my sun hat when the sky looked like rain I might as well be a cowgirl I make the road my range I might as well be a cowgirl Cause what if it rains? What if it rains? What if it rains? What if it rains? I can see the mountains from here.
KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, let's see what is happening here. Let's do a quick... Uh, well, let me tell you what's going to happen next week, okay? It is Halloween. Uh, the Bard, the wonderful uh, wizard of cyberspaceorbit.com, Kent Stedman, my good friend, and Bard will be here with us uh, for the Halloween show, as he has been for the last few years. We'll have... Uh, Bardo with us all week next next uh, next Monday on the 30th of October, okay? On the 6th of November, I'm excited about a show that I just set up a few days ago with David John Oates. And if you've ever heard of this phenomenon that's called reverse speech, well, then you've probably heard David John Oates' name before. If you haven't uh, or been introduced or if you're not familiar with the concept of reverse speech analysis, well, you might want to listen to the program next week. I know it sounds a little fishy, but uh, give it a chance, as always. We don't discount things out of hand. And David Oates is uh, quite a remarkable fellow. And I've been interested in his work for many years. It's not new. It's been out there for quite some time. He's been doing this for at least 15 years, I think. And um, the reverse speech phenomenon is a pretty interesting one. The idea is basically you analyze, you, and, and it's really become interesting now that we have digital technology. When David started doing this stuff, you know, you had to use a recorder of some sort, you know, a tape recorder type thing, and, and playing it backwards and this sort of thing was much more difficult. Speeding it up and slowing it down was much more difficult than it is now that we have digital technology. So anyway, the idea is to record speech, basically. And, uh, you know, regardless, conversation, whatever you're interested in, and then play it backwards and uh, analyze what you hear. And sometimes certain things come out of that, apparently, or you know, this is the question, uh, and the idea that David is putting forward and, and discussing and debating and all this sort of thing. But uh, he'll play some examples, uh, certainly on the program, and you can sort of judge for yourself. And then, uh, like I say, with the technology we have these days, very very inexpensive digital recorders, uh, you can sort of mess around with it yourself. But anyway, uh, David John Oates coming up on the 6th of November. We've got uh, Dale Pendell. Another wonderful author. I'm not sure exactly when Dale and I are going to speak, but that's coming up in the next few weeks for sure. Jim Beard, my wonderful grandfather and uh, Lakota elder from Colorado, will be talking with us sometime in the next couple of months. I've had little to no luck with Dr. Roland Griffiths from Johns Hopkins, but I will not give up on that one. Stephen Buhner, one of my favorites, uh, Stephen Herod Buhner. He, uh, he and I spoke last week, and we'll have a program with Stephen sometime before the end of the year. John Major Jenkins, Jay Widener, all those guys will be back before the end of the year, and we'll do something special for the uh, for the new year. I might have uh, Rick Levine back on the program, and we'll do an astrology thing for uh, uh, 2007 and see what it looks like, all right? A quantum astrology thing, as it were, all right? Okay, space weather. If you were staring up at the sky on Saturday, uh, you may have seen a mild but sort of attractive display of meteors. This was the Orionid meteor shower. Dust from the tail of Halley's Comet, as a matter of fact. They call it the Orionid meteor shower. And again, the names of these meteor showers are primarily based on the direction from which they come from the perspective of Earth. So if you have the Orionid meteor shower, they don't really originate in the constellation Orion, but from our perspective on Earth, that's where they appear to come from, that particular direction. And when you have the Perseids, you know, they come from Perseus. When you have the Leonids, they come from Leo. You know, it's all about the constellations and from which direction in the sky they come from. But anyway, the Orionid meteor shower was uh, making some 
Sparks in the Sky back on Saturday night and even Sunday morning. Uh, if you were interested, you could have seen it. And if you want to see it now, just go on over to Space Weather or Kent Stedman's site at cyberspaceorbit.com, and you can see some wonderful images that we're taking of uh, not only the meteor shower, but uh, pretty amazing uh, aurora borealis as well. Up in like Scandinavia and Iceland, there was a pretty high-speed solar wind back on the 19th and the 20th that hit the Earth's magnetic field and sparked some pretty interesting aurora for a couple nights there in Scandinavia. But uh, the most interesting that I've been looking at over the last few days is this giant sunspot. There's a sunspot designated number 917, that just a few days ago was very small, and now it's big. It's as big as the planet Neptune right now, and it's crackling and twisting with solar flares and magnetic fields bending all over the place, and it has potential for some pretty uh, pretty significant flares, I think, over the next few days. So we'll keep an eye on Sunspot 917. There's some great images of this as well up on the website at, uh, uh, at spaceweather.com. I glean a lot of this type of information over there at Space Weather. So there's a bunch of images up there you can che- uh, you can check out. Also, those uh, images of the aurora up there in the north are pretty stunning right now. So anyway, it's sort of subsiding now. The solar wind is is uh, dropping down a little bit, but I tell you this uh, this sunspot 917 could could uh, whip them up again for sure and bring those aurora back into uh, into full phase. And I'm still waiting for a, for an opportunity to see a good aurora borealis uh, display all the way down here in Missouri. If that happens, well, then we know we got something real serious going on up there on the sun, but uh, you never know, you know. Okay, what else? October 23rd through the 27th, the International Conference on Black Holes. A five-day conference in Kathmandu, Nepal, about black holes. Of course, nobody even really knows if they exist. Uh, what else? Um, Messenger. This is a mission on the way to Mercury is going to do a Venus flyby, as a matter of fact, on the 24th. That's tomorrow. And actually, it'll be today in two and a half minutes. It's also my sister's birthday, October 24th. So happy birthday, Lori. I love you. Let's see. Anyway, Messenger uh, will be flying by Venus tomorrow. And what, what, what they use this for is they do what they call a gravity assist. And they whip the spacecraft on a, traje- on a trajectory that sends it you know, into basic, not into a not into a sustained orbit, but into a into a soft orbit around a planet or a moon or something like that. And as the craft moves around, it it it, it uses the inertia that it builds from the momentum gained from the gravitational pull of the planet, and then spins back out toward its next destination. And so this messenger uh, mission is doing that with Venus, and it will be on its way to Mercury here shortly. And we'll follow up on that as that uh, mission proceeds. Alright, what else? Uh, October 24th, tomorrow is also the 155th anniversary of William Lassell's discovery of the moons of Uranus, uh, Umbriel and Ariel. A couple of names of, of angels, as a matter of fact, if you're interested in the Christian tradition, which we'll be talking about with Jan Irvin in just a few minutes, actually. But Umbriel and Ariel are both names of angels. Angels seem to end in the letters E-L, for some reason, 99% of the time, it seems. Anyway, October 25th, Cassini, this probe that has been flying around uh, the moons of Saturn, will be doing another flyby of Titan, this very, very interesting moon of Saturn. So there's a Cassini flyby of, uh, of Titan coming up in a couple of days. A couple of comets that are getting close to the planet here. We've got the 
335th anniversary of Giovanni Cassini's discovery of the moon of Saturn. It's called Iapetus. That's one that we've talked about on the air before with Jay Widener. It's one that uh, Richard Hoagland has done quite a bit of interesting uh, research on. But this Iapetus moon of Saturn is another really trippy astronomical artifact. And it was discovered over 335 years ago. What else? Uh, Great Britain's first space launch, Prospero. The 35th anniversary back in October 20 uh, uh, will be coming up on October 28th. You know, Great Britain never really did much in space, at least not above the board. I guess we do most of their bidding for them. Anyway, what else? Uh, Edwards Air Force Base, open house. That will hardly be an open house, I'm sure. Uh, the Third Italian Congress of Amateur Radio Astronomy, Daylight Savings on the 29th, and uh, let's see, the 25th anniversary of Venera 13. The launch of USSR uh, Venus lander, Venera 13, was uh, in 1981, 25 years ago. So, all right, look, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. We're going to play a quick song here from a band that's called Revolve that my guest turned me on to just recently. This song is called Awake. So it's time to do exactly that. If you've been snoozing, listen to this. I'll be back in just a minute. It's Mike. We'll have Jan Irvin. In four minutes and 21 seconds. In the meantime, this song is called Awake, and this is Revolve. Thank you. 
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. That's right, this is Mike. You are listening to Radio Orbit. And it's about five minutes after midnight now, the 24th of October. And I'd like to introduce my guest of the night. His name is Jan Irvin. He's the co-author of a book called Astrotheology and Shamanism. I was introduced to him, as I mentioned earlier in the program, by one of the members of my forum who posted a link on a thread about psychedelic mushrooms, as a matter of fact, and linked over to Jan Irvin's website, which is called pharmacraticinquisition.com. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. At any rate, uh, I went over there, snooped around, downloaded this amazing video, and was very interested in talking with Jan. So uh, that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. And without further delay, we will say hello. Jan Irvin, hi and welcome, and thanks for uh, being on Radio Orbit. Hello, Mike, and uh, thanks for having me on this evening. You're, uh, you're more than welcome. So, All right, let's get right to it here. We've got uh, wonderful music, by the way, Revolve. I love that stuff. Thanks for introducing me to those guys. Yeah, you're welcome. They're uh, good friends of mine. All right, we'll play some more from them uh, as we uh, move through our program, okay? Sure. All right, uh, let's see. Where do we start? First of all, thank you for doing the work you guys are doing. You and Andrew, uh, we're only speaking with Jan tonight. He's sort of half of a uh, two-man team, but uh, I'm, I'm certain that uh, he's representing both of them well. So thank you for the work that you guys are doing. And let's talk a little bit about you. Where'd you come from? How'd you get along this path and get interested in things like astrotheology, shamanism, uh, entheogenic substances, uh, the, the, the history and the background of Christianity and all these religions? What's the nature of your background? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Actually, I think earlier you mentioned I was from Boulder, Colorado or something. Are, are you not living in Boulder? No, I'm actually in the Southern California mountains. Oh wow! You know, I I'm, I get I get my phone. Uh, I do everything by phone area codes, and I think I know them all, but I guess I blew it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But so, yeah, born and raised in uh, Southern California. I uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. As I tongue twist myself here, it's sort of an interesting path how I got involved in in this whole area of research. Um started off in my late teens, early 20s with uh, researching industrial hemp and medical marijuana and meeting Jack Hare and a woman named Jeannie Brittinghamerstead that uh, sure, sure. recorded the She Who Remembers archives and things like that. Right. She, made, she, she did a tremendous job of, uh, of archiving a lot of really valuable uh, uh, material, including a lot of the McKenna material. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so it was meeting them that really got me on the path of, of researching not only industrial hemp, but industrial hemp led me into researching entheogens, and Jack had that information around his genie in the archives with Terrence McKenna and a lot of this other stuff. And I had met Jack in my early 20s, and uh, he was researching ethnomycology on the side as he was researching the history of hemp and writing his book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Right, right. And he, his real passion was researching religion, but he sort of, 
uh, put it on the back burner in order to write this book about hemp. He felt it was more urgent to to get out, and the the message would have was more acceptable at the time than than a, a, a book on uh, the history of mushrooms right, and religion, I guess. Right, right. So, you know, um, Jan, before we continue, let's mention Jack's website, actually. I think it's Jack Herrera, H-E-R-E-R. Yeah, Jack Herrer. Jack Herrer, right, okay. JackHerrer.com, J-A-C-K-H-E-R-E-R.com. And, yeah, he's done some tremendous work over the years. Yeah, and his book is actually uh, free on his website if anybody wants to research uh, his work. And he actually offers $100,000 to prove the information on industrial hemp wrong, you know, hemp for fuel, hemp for paper, hemp for clothing, and, and many other things. So if anybody wants a, a shot at a $100,000 challenge that's been ongoing for almost 20 years, right, go to his right. website and try your best. <laughs> right, and, and, uh, and if you don't want to challenge him, definitely go over there and read The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Absolutely. Okay, so, all right, so back to you. So you ran into these guys early on. And, uh, you know, it it really just sort of went from there. Um, I started researching John Allegra's work in the early 90s who had been, his John research, of, uh, he was a Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. yeah, 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 okay, go on. John, John Allegra, okay. Yeah, his his work was basically largely marginalized. He was the only non Christian scholar to join the the Dead Sea Scrolls team. Yeah, they, they he, thought he was a real maverick or something, right? Right. Well, he he had originally started out as a Methodist minister, but as he began studying languages and and uh, getting his education in philology, he he had to uh, step away from religion and proclaimed himself as agnostic. So. Um, he he started, you know, a lot of people don't know that he started out as a Methodist minister and then converted through this research that he did. Wow, that's, I've, I've read uh, uh, parts of his book that's called, um, what is it called? The, 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 the Sacred the, Mushroom and the Cross. No, I've read another one that's the, 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 that was called the something of the Dead Scrolls. The, oh, he's, well, he wrote, <clears throat> he wrote 12 books uh, that were published. There's... There are a couple others that haven't been published, but uh, Dead, the the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth is a very good book that he wrote. But his his most famous work, uh, or infamous depending on who you speak to, is uh, his book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Okay, okay. And uh, with with that book, it was largely marginalized and attacked and just ridiculed by scholars all over the place who never really sat down to research the 150 pages of footnotes that he provided and, and things like that. And, you know, 14 scholars published a, a review immediately after the book was in print, um, uh, just trashing the book. But the amount of time from when they wrote the review to when it was published and when the book was published just gave them no time to allow for a, a unbiased critical examination of the work. So... You know, um, you know, I the, the one that I have actually is called it's called Physician Heal Thyself. Oh yeah, yeah, that was I think his last published work. I can tell you. Uh, yeah, it was like 1985, something like that. I think. Right, I can tell you exactly what all he published here. 
Uh, his first book was in 1956, The Dead Sea Scrolls, and then his next book, The People of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Treasure of the Copper Scroll, 1960, The Shapira Affair, 1965, Desert, uh, Search in the Desert, 1967, Discoveries in the du Judean Desert of Jordan, Qumran Cave 4, 1968, mm -hmm. Sacred Mushroom of the Cross, 1970, The End of the Road, 1970, Chosen People, 71, Wow. You know, yeah, Lost Gods, around. and then, you know, right. three books later, Physician Heal Thyself was his last book published right. in 85. <laughs> Figures that's the one I got, you know. <laughs> 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 well, uh, uh, certainly it's a nice synopsis of, of the earlier work, for sure. But at any rate, let's talk a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Well, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in, I believe it was 1947. Yeah, it was in the caves in Qumran. Right, and uh, discovered by a, a Bedouin boy who was chasing after something and went down into one of the caves and discovered uh, a bunch of containers and, and fragments of the scrolls and things like that. And uh, so that was how they orig originally were discovered. And then in the 1950s, um, a team of scholars was put together primarily through the Catholic Church, the uh, Catholic Church's Ecole Bib uh, Biblique, and, and under Father Joseph Millick, they put together a team of scholars to translate the scrolls. And uh, John, J John Allegro was the, the one person selected to represent England okay. and the only philologist of the team. Let me grab a sip of water here. Sure. Let me ask you uh, about the scrolls themselves physically. For people who aren't familiar, what are they made of? Are they paper? Are they clay? Are they made out of uh, some sort of metal? Or uh, You know, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, I don't know if I remember exactly. I think, well, one of them was copper. I think, they're I think most copper, of them were yeah. papyrus or... Mm. or um, it seems like they were papyrus, if I remember correctly. Okay. All right, regardless, uh, they were discovered and certainly people got interested in interested in them right away uh well it, well not right away per se it really took several years before the news of them really be uh hit uh the these the bedouin guys were really peddling them on the on the black market to the highest bidder uh trying to get, uh, you know, money right. for the scrolls. So. Right. Probably didn't even know what they had, obviously. Right, and it really took a while before people tried to gather the, the scrolls back together and make public the information about it. There may have been a couple blurbs in the paper, but the whole affair really took a, a little while to get going. It probably wasn't until the early 50s that the, the story really began to hit the papers. And, and it was... And an, an astonishing story at the time because uh, the scrolls were said to have been written in the time that uh, the, the, a person, a, a supposed person called Jesus Christ, was said to have existed. So um, all the information in the in the scrolls should have either verified that or denied that. And uh, what was in the scrolls was actually suppressed by the Catholic Ecole Biblique scholars for over 35 years. And John Allegro, um, being the only non-religious uh, member of the team, was the only one who was always pushing forward trying to release information in the scrolls. 
and the rest of the team wanted to put together a a conclusive uh, encyclopedia or a conclusive volume of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls information and wanted to keep it to themselves. And John Allegro felt that it was important to get everything out to, pub, uh, out to peer review as he published it, whether or not his work had, had mistakes in it. And that's why he wanted to get it out was for other scholars to be able to check it for mistakes. And he was attacked for that. And um, it wasn't until... 1991, I believe, with the uh, San Marino Library in Los Angeles, when they finally released all of uh, some copies of the, they had, had acquired photographs of all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, they released them to any scholar who wanted them. So, uh, and that was after a huge fight that had, had lasted for decades over scholarly access to the scrolls. And, and within one year, uh, Dr. Robert Eisenman and a partner of his published the first, uh, uh, full, uh, first major publication of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, What's so explosive about them that they were so concerned about hiding? Well, there's a, the story of, the, of a teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they try and argue is Jesus or some character. And, and what, the, what the non-Orthodox scholars are saying is that there were many, many groups at the time that were worshipping uh, the same character characteristics in religion, which were the, these groups like the Essenes, the Zodokites, the, the uh, Therapeutes, uh, all these different groups, the Gnostics that lived in uh, the Middle East at the time. And uh, what's so explosive about it is that it shows the history of the early Christianity is completely different than a lot of Christians believe and a lot of the stories, how we take them, aren't, you know, what we think they were. And, and not to mention there were many uh, Gnostic scriptures that were discovered, the, the Nod Hammadi scriptures that were discovered in Egypt as well in right, the uh, right. 50s, right after the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the Nod Hammadi Library is another amazing find, so... Yeah, it's definitely a great find, and it has a lot of the apocryphy in it, all of the other... Books, the Book of of Thomas, and and the, all these other uh, gospels that weren't published in the Bible that are detailed stories of the so-called life of of Jesus and everything. But you know that's what what John Allegro did was in the in the 70s, based on his knowledge of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and Hebrew and Sanskrit and Sumerian and uh, Various other languages, he uh, attempted to show that Christianity was a a sun worshipping fertility cult that used uh, psychedelic mushrooms and, and drugs, and especially the Amanita muscaria. And in 1970, when his book went to print, that was pretty much widely criticized, and uh, his work was laughed at as re being ridiculous. But uh, as as we go through time and more and more and more information comes out uh, or has come out since that that has shown that nearly all of the religions throughout the world are are based on two or three primary 
primary things, which are uh, entheogenic drugs, which are the psychedelic drugs. If we think of the Native American Indians that use peyote and the South Americans that use ayahuasca or San Pedro cacti and the Siberians that use the Amanita muscaria and the uh, Native American Indians that use Amanita muscaria, etc., yeah, and the, and the psilocybin in Mazatec and yeah, and exactly. And there's the the list of of entheogenic plants around the world that different cultures have used is is pretty phenomenal. And we, we you know we only know a small portion of the the plants in existence, <laughs> and uh, much less what their chemical compositions are and the the effects they have on us. So okay. and and fungi. So Amanita musc- muscaria. This is the one, uh, or certainly one of the interesting ones. That, that shows up in, in your research. Let's talk about that one. For people who aren't familiar, that's actually a species of mushroom. Right. Well, here, let me grab another sip of water real quick. I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> the uh, Amanita muscaria, its its common name is the fly agaric. The fly agaric, okay. Uh, it's a red and white mushroom that you very commonly see in fairy tales. It's the... It's the mushroom of Mario Brothers and the Smurfs, and um, you know if you look in just about any fairy tale book, you'll see the mushroom in there. It's a bright red cap mushroom with white dots on it. Bright red cap mushroom with white dots and a and a uh, white stem or, or stipe. Does it have a veil or does it not have a veil? It does have a veil, it has and a in veil. fact, the the veil that falls down from it becomes the the swaddling clothes of of Jesus as we show in our book and that's very important symbology but all right let's explain that real fast for people who are unfamiliar with mycology some mushrooms have a veil and some don't tell them what a veil is real quick well the veil is the skin that sort of covers the mushroom as it as it uh, comes out of its egg shape as it as it uh, as it grows um, so it basically peels away, and then the veil falls down and becomes the the skirt around the stipe, hanging around the stipe of the mushroom. So it's it's basically just a little uh, skirt once the once the mushroom opens. But I should make it clear that I'm not an expert mycologist. I study ethnomycology and theomycology, which is how different cultures use drugs and how they relate to religion. So, all right, clear enough. Uh, so let's continue. Okay. So the Amanita, uh, it's it's red with white spots, has this veil. It's red with white spots, has its veil, and uh, well, it's there's. Let me let me go around this about uh, round about this in a different way so that we can talk about. Uh, let me introduce Christmas and then sort of bring it back to how sure. the the mushroom was symbolized through Christmas as uh, Jesus was with the sun and everything. And a lot of your listeners will think that this sounds completely absurd as they're listening to this right now, but as we start to break this down, they will understand it more and more as we go through here, so let me be clear on that. But Okay, all right, and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and for my listeners out there, you know, this is me talking, not Jan, I would probably say the same thing, but I read a book by James Arthur a number of years ago, and I don't say it anymore, so do me a favor, stick around, give us the benefit of the doubt, and let uh, Jan uh, expand on this, okay? Right, exactly. And James Arthur was one person that uh, wrote about uh, the history of Christmas, as well as James Versinos, uh, uh, Dr. Patrick Harding out of the University of Sheffield has written a, a great book called Christmas Unwrapped. Um, 
another book, uh, uh, The Physics of Christmas by James Highfield, who's a, a Ph.D. who works for the London Times or one of the major newspapers over there. Uh, very another very good book on the on the hidden histories of uh, of Christmas. But when we think of the the red mushroom with white spots, and then it's actually sticking in the ground, and it has its black boots, uh, the character of Santa Claus is actually uh, reminiscent of the mushroom itself. And while Father Christmas uh, wore different colors, often uh, the the shaman, uh, the Siberian shaman, w- uh, would wear the colors of the sacred plants that they used and dressing up in red and white like the mushroom was very common in fact we have photographs of of modern Siberian shaman who still dress like the red and white mushrooms uh, that they that they as they go out and they take them um, but the the story of the of the mushroom and Christmas really starts under the Christmas tree because these bright red and white Amanita muscaria mushrooms only grow underneath uh, conifer trees and and uh, you know like the pine and the cedar and right they like to grow underneath pine trees yeah right and uh, they they grow under oaks and birch and and fir and things like that as well and uh, so these are the trees that they prefer. And well, actually, they grow in a symbiotic relationship with those trees, so they actually have to have those trees to to grow and survive. So they're literally the fruit of the tree. Yeah, the root systems uh, work with the mycelium. Exactly. Okay. And the the green, the evergreen trees are considered sacred to the ancient pagans, and uh, we still consider. Uh, uh, evergreen sacred today. If anybody questions that, uh, you know, think next time you carry a, carry a Christmas tree into your house that that is the, the sacred tree. And we put the, the brightly colored packages underneath the tree in semblance of what grows underneath them, which are, are the mushrooms. And James Arthur and uh, Dr. Harding and, and several other people have argued that uh, the, the symbolism of hanging the Ornaments on the tree comes from the uh, hanging the the mushrooms in a central tree to dry. Mm. As they were out hunting them, they would hang them in a tree to dry because they're, the mushrooms are very large and heavy. And in fact, and primarily could, water. Right. You know, if your listeners go on uh, someplace like eBay or something and do a search on antique Christmas ornaments, you'll probably find a lot of, of uh, mushroom ornaments and things there. Yeah. I've I've gone to You've documented a bunch of that. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's very easy to find these these mushroom ornaments. And, Literally and the same ones, you guys. They're red with white spots. I mean, it's it's the amanita, no question about it. Yes, exactly. And if, you know, we show that in our video as well. And in fact, if you look at old Christmas cards, and uh, it was very common to depict the amanita muscaria mushrooms in Christmas cards, and they would show them with. With uh, gnomes and dwarfs and things like that, and fairies and all of these things. Well, right. these, all of these different creatures are the creatures that are seen under the influence of the mushroom, and they're also also symbolic of the mushrooms themselves. Like uh, it's not Rumpelstiltskin. One of those old stories where the guy falls underneath, uh, falls asleep underneath the tree, and uh, you know wakes up and he's in fairyland. Um, 
but there's all, all sorts of these stories, the fairy tales with the mushrooms and the, the fairy rings and things like that. In fact, you know, even Alice in Wonderland. Right, exactly. And uh, how about Fantasia is another one. Right. Uh, the Smurfs are, are filled oh, with... Oh, the Smurfs, they got that Amanita everywhere. Well, not only that, but they depict uh, astrotheology everywhere as well. Really? All right. Yeah. Well, oh, okay. All right. Well, look. Um, so, you know, you have uh, the 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 wizard uh, Papa Smurf, who's the wise wizard of or shaman of the tribe, and then you have the the apprentice who's brainy that <laughs> nobody likes. All the different Smurfs or the different characters or different personas of what it is to be human. And uh, you have the the evil wizard who is Gargamel and the witch and all of these different characters, and they use the various plants and mixtures, and they live in mushroom homes, and all of this information is right there. And in fact, uh, you know, going further into the Christmas story, I mentioned I live in the Southern California mountains up until the the, uh, late 90s. There was a uh, park up here called uh, Santa's Village, and all over this, this Santa's Village Park, they had these huge spotted mushrooms just literally covering the entire park. Amazing. And, the, you know, they of course, they had the reindeer, and you could sit on the, the mushrooms all over the park. And if you look at, uh, well, Disneyland had their electric lights parade, and they would have these mushrooms everywhere. And, and, yeah, like the, I said, and the reindeer fly, of course. This is another story. Oh, yeah. Right, well, well, the shaman are, are the reindeer herders, and it is... Very well known that reindeer's favorite food yeah, is. They like that mushroom. Yeah, they like the mushrooms. So we have the the flying reindeer and uh, reindeer known to be uh, to easily be enticed to work like the like the proverbial carrot by dangling a, an amanita on a stick in front of their nose. So. And I think that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Part of the practice of shamanism there in Siberia with the mushroom was the reindeer, again, talk about symbiosis. I mean, they followed the reindeer to find the mushroom. Uh, they did indeed. Um, and, in, well, in, in fact, often they would have to try and get to the, the mushrooms before the reindeer because the reindeer would They'd eat attack them, them or knock them over to right. try and get to the mushrooms first. And then they would drink their urine and things like well, that. The, yeah, the... That's that's sort of a long and, and difficult story, right, but uh, right. the, the, there's chemicals in the mushroom that are not uh, metabolized in the body when they're passed through, so they come out in the urine, and the deer would drink the urine of the shaman. The shaman would drink the urine of the deer and their own urine, you know, and if the mushrooms were limited, um, especially during festivals, the shaman would right. recycle their own urine to... To keep the process going. In fact, that it's been shown that right, remarkable. It's been shown that a lot of uh, the entheogenic substances are actually secreted in the urine. Yes, and it was. I, it, that's an amazing story because when it was supposedly in short supply, they literally would do that. Is they would just pass the urine from one to another, and it was a way of sort of extending the uh, uh, the substance almost ad infinitum. It was amazing. Yeah, and we have images. Uh, I don't remember the the what the painting's called. It's in our book. Uh, uh, one of the old masters. He's they're all lying under a tree with the uh, homunculus. The homunculus is urinating, and they're they're all they all are sitting around with their cups, scooping up the urine from the homunculus and and dancing around drunk. And you see one of the guys on the hill, and he's drunk. I'm just 
flipping through my book here trying to find the the name of the uh the picture for your listeners but uh it's not that important they can see it in our video or um or, or get a get our book and it's in there as well all right well look and i tell you what um let, let's take a little break here and maybe you can uh maybe you can find out what that is we'll come back and we'll tell people how they can get the book and the video is available online uh free anybody can download it um, it's a big file, and uh, it's also split up into a number of smaller files if you want. But at any rate, uh, let's do that. We'll come back in just a minute, okay, Jan? All right, you got it. All right, everybody, it's uh, Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 12.35 in the morning now on October 24th, 2006. My guest is Jan Irvin, the author of Astrotheology and Shamanism, also uh, the uh, the co-author of that book and, and, uh, and the co-producer and... I guess, uh, uh, presenter, this amazing video that's called the Pharmacratic Inquisition. And we'll, uh, we haven't really even talked about those words yet, but we will in just a little while. So stick around. It's Mike. We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, we'll hear another one here from our new friends, Revolve. And uh, this one is called Blue. Reality is simply 
something else. And people have their own theories about what it is. But you must remember that they're all theories. Your ego in it can't own it. Away from my dream in this dream world above, I see beyond my That's Blue, another song from a wonderful new band that I just discovered. Thanks to our guests tonight. They're called Revolve. We'll hear more from them in just a bit, okay? It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. i got a little bit of business i got to take care of here, so let's do that real fast. All right. Uh, wouldn't it be great to visit the BBC in London or watch Lisa Mullins put together The World in Boston? You can if you make a pledge on our website at kopn.org. Everyone who pledges at kopn.org is automatically entered in a drawing uh, to win a trip for two. However, no pledge is necessary to enter. For more information, just get on the web and go to kopn.org and enter the Public Radio Takes You Places sweepstakes. All right? All right, one more quick thing here from my good friends on Mystery Science Radio 3000. Are you sick and tired of mediocre radio? Do you crave the kind of music that moves you? Are you conscious at 2 a.m. on Sunday? Tune into 89.5 KOPN Sundays, 2 to 5 a.m. for Mystery Science Radio 3000. Join Kyle, Tony, and their loyal army of slackers as they hijack the airwaves for the good of mid-Missouri. Mystery Science Radio 3000. It's more fun than a dry slip and slide. It is, for sure. All right, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. My guest is Jan Irvin. You can find information about Jan on the web at www.pharmacratic-inquisition.com. You can also link there directly from my site at mikehagan.com. And there's a tremendous amount of interesting stuff there, including a download of this, uh, uh, this video that we've been speaking about. And uh, we'll say welcome back to Jan. Hi. Hello, Mike. Yeah, I wanted to uh, mention real quick that our main website is actually GnosticMedia.com. Okay, so. Gnostic Media. That's another one. I don't know if we have a link up to that. If um, Yeah, if, I, I did see one on your website there for that one, but uh, 
Yeah, that's the main one, and everything else really links from there. Okay, so, so let's give that out one more time. It's GnosticMedia.com, and that's Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-M-E-D-I-A, GnosticMedia.com. Yes. Right, yeah, okay, that's the main site, and everything links out from there. Yeah, and we were looking for the name of that picture earlier. It's called, or the painting, it's called the Titian's Bachnall of the Adrians, and... Uh, oh. A uh, really good uh, description of it can be found in Clark Heinrich's book, uh, which is called Magic Mushrooms and Religion and Alchemy. And uh, he's written a, a fantastic uh, book on, on that subject, uh, uh, showing a lot of the symbology in there. And we actually, I think, quote him in our video on, on that particular image. Okay. All right. Let's. Uh, before the break, we were talking about Christmas, and we were talking about the mushroom and how it's connected to the to, to this particular holiday. Uh, there's more to it. Let's continue with that a little bit. All right. Well, there there's actually a lot more to it, and uh, I'd like to uh, eventually come back around and, and sort of uh, touch on Halloween. At the we'll just go full circle through a year and sort of try and tie it to Halloween. Okay. Okay. But um, with the with the history of Christmas, what they would do is, is actually celebrate uh, Christmas at, uh, well, that December 25th, which was considered the, the day that the sun, the sun in the sky, God's sun in the sky, was born and began heading north again uh, during the cold winter. Uh, the, from December 25th, the, the sun, is, it starts heading north towards spring again and gives us warmth again. So... Uh, that was really the significance of the date of December 25th. And, and related to the solstice on the 21st as exactly. well, I think, right? Uh, exactly. And uh, on December 21st, which is the winter solstice, the, the sun uh, does not fall to the south anymore from, from June 21st, roughly, and uh, which is the summer solstice, until December 25th. Uh, 25th First, the, the sun is falling towards the south each day. If you wake up each morning, you look uh, you look towards the east. The sun is rising at the same. If you go out, you know, look out the window every morning at, at the exact same time. It's a little bit further to the south. Further south, right? Okay. Okay. And so, on December 21st, the sun doesn't just bounce right back and start heading north again. What it does is it hovers or it's in a tomb for three days. Ah, the three days in the tomb. Right, and then exactly. The, and, then, and then the risen sun. And then, and then the sun is born again on the morning of December 25th and begins heading north again towards spring. So this is the whole, whole cycle. Mm -hmm. And all of, just about all of the ancient religions, the primary characters are based on, on this uh, cycle, uh, whether it be Mithra or, you know, a... a uh, Krishna, uh, Horus, um, Zeus, uh, Odin, a lot of these different gods have very similar stories. And if you just sort of peel away through the, you know, peel peel away the surface, you'll see many similarities. Now, some of the of, of the story will change from culture to culture, but the underlying theme is almost always the same. Okay. And so, uh, you know, further, if we look. On let's say December 24th, we want to look at uh, the story of the, the bright star of Bethlehem and the three wise men, or the the Magi, which the Magi were uh, in, in old times they were the shaman, the wise men, and uh, so the Magi were the continuation of of 
the ancient shamanic knowledge, but in reality what the story is talking about is the three stars of the Belt of Orion. And the Belt of Orion points directly toward a star in the night sky, which is uh, the, the bright star Sirius, or the dog star. Mm-hmm. And where between the three stars of the Belt of Orion and Sirius, it makes an arrow that uh, that at dusk will point down to the spot on the horizon where the sun will rise again on, on Christmas morning. And you go uh, about midnight, um, what happens uh, on, on Christmas Eve, at about midnight, the constellation of Virgo, the Virgin, sticks her head over the horizon. And then at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, her her midsection comes up over the horizon, and then you see her stepping on the constellation of serpents, which is the serpent, and that explains the biblical tale of Mary stepping on the head of the serpent with her left foot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then at dawn, the sun is born between Virgo, the constellation of Virgo in the, in the sky. The sun, God's sun, is born on December 25th. And, uh, you know, so this is the story... Of, of Christmas and Jesus being born on December 25th of the Virgin. Um, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are actually uh, the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And then Jesus is the sun in the middle of the Zodiac going around. And in fact, um, we are now in, in the, the Zodiac age of Pisces and the symbol of Jesus is the symbol of uh, of the fish, the fisher of men. Jesus was the fisher of men. He fed the masses with two fish. And this was, in ancient uh, astrotheology, this was knowledge about when the, when the sun came up at the vernal or spring equinox. For 2,150 years during an age, the sun would come up during the age of Pisces. And right now we're ending the age of, of Pisces. Um, before the age of Pisces, and what I'm talking about here in these ages is what's known as the precession of the equinoxes, mm-hmm. which is actually known as a great year. And, and many people don't know that the, beyond a regular solar year of 365 days, we have a great year which lasts... Uh, 26,000. Yeah, 25,800 years, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then actually beyond that, there's another year, which is called the galactic year, that lasts like 22 million years or something like that. Right, right. Right. That's the time it takes our solar system to pass all the way around the galaxy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's 22 or 26 million years, but that's regardless of what we're we're talking about But it's great to uh, to visualize those things because it's it's so easy to forget that we are in these big systems within systems that are also encompassing smaller, smaller systems. That's a very good point, and and that's what we talk about in our book and in the video is the macrocosm and the microcosm, showing the relationships to all these different layers of how ancient uh, peoples believed uh, or understood their philosophies. And what we've done is we've really just taken and literalized these ancient stories and tried to make historical this same story. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, uh, <laughs> with as, as we go through the year, I'm, I'm, uh, or I, as we go through the great year, excuse me, 
Um, the great year is broken down into segments called ages, just like a calendar year is broken down into segments called months. Mm. And the calendar year, they're called months because it's based on rotations of the moon. Mm -hmm. So they're moons, you know. Mm -hmm. And the the precession pre is based on on divisions of the uh, what is it? A division of thirty-two or something like that of the of the zodiac. Right, the night sky. Exactly, and they're broken into ages that run backward through the zodiac, which each age lasts uh, two thousand one hundred and fifty years. So, in other words, what I'm trying to explain is is that if if we start a little over six thousand years ago, we would have been in the age of Taurus. And going through, moving forward through time, the age of Taurus lasted 2,150 years. During this age, people didn't just worship dumb animals like the bull because they were stupid and didn't know better and they only worshipped a, an animal. It was because they were, in the they were living in the age of Taurus and mm -hmm. they worshipped the, the zodiac sign of, of, of Taurus because the sun at the vernal equinox rose under Taurus. Right, and that's the, I, I think that's the, that's the point of procession, is that during any particular age, and it's all of these 12 ages, each one according to a particular sign of the zodiac, the sun rises within sort of the boundaries of that particular right. constellation. Well, okay. what, what's happening is, is the sun moves one degree to the every sun. 72 years. Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so which is considered the average life of a man, which is one day or one technically one day or one degree of of the precession, and the precession means to go backward through the zodiac, as opposed to the monthly procession where the months progress forward, forward. Mm -hmm. through the count, you know, through the through the signs of the zodiac. The precession runs backwards. So I just mentioned Taurus the bull. If we go 2,150 years, uh, you know, Taurus last 2,150 years, we go forward from that. The next 2,150 year period is Aries. And the Jews have uh, Moses with the horns, with the ram's horn, uh, horns on his head. They blow the shofar in honor of the ram, which is the, the age of Aries. Mm -hmm. After the age of Aries, we have the age of Pisces, the age of Jesus, the, the Look on the cars driving around the highway, you'll see all the little fish signs on the back of their... Well, not only... <laughs> right on their bumper stickers. Whoa, okay, well, <laughs> since you just uh, hit the Vesica Pisces, we might as well jump into that. That's <laughs> You just opened a can of worms there. I know, that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Vesica Pisces is actually the symbol of two merging polarities, and it's, it's originally the symbol of the female yoni or the female genitalia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and uh, the, the, this is where the symbol of the fish comes from, and the fish was a symbol of fertility, okay? And a lot of people don't know this, but if you look at uh, somebody, uh, may have a picture of the sticker of Lady Guadalupe on the back of their car, or the Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. and she'll have her hands raised just below her chin, and she's standing in the circle of the Vesica Pisces, and we have it in our book and in the video. 
And if you look very closely at those stickers, you will see that that is a symbol of the female genitalia. Mary is the symbol of the genitals. Mary is also matrix, mother, mm-hmm. which is the womb. Mm-hmm. And uh, marine, ocean, which is called, also called marine, etc. Mary, the, these are all female fertility uh, uh, descriptions. Yeah, and the ocean is the the metaphor of the amniotic sea that we all you know develop in, and the salt water is the same composition as right. that. Right, and, and, and you, a ship comes like Jordan Maxwell says, a ship comes into port at births. You know, mm. you come through the birth canal, you are delivered to your dock tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah fact, like, the, the language of all of this stuff is so interesting. You know, when you dig into it, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it it, it really is, and you know. Jordan Maxwell, somebody you should probably have on your show one of these days. His work is fantastic. I'd, I'd love to have him on the show, actually. Yeah, I should do that. Yeah, he wrote. He was kind of kind enough to uh, write the forward to your for book. book. Mm. Wow, that's a, but, that, that's an honor. You, you you should be proud of that. Thank you. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't had Jordan on the show, but I have read his material. He's very. He's, he's an amazing guy. Yeah, he's he's literally done uh, probably six hundred radio shows and. Produced hundreds of TV and movie, you know, uh, documentaries and things like that. So, yeah, he's, he's he's quite something. So, but uh, so anyway, that brings us up to uh, the end of Pisces is really considered the the end of you know uh, the the age of Christianity, and uh, you know it's it's really. So is that what all the fighting's about? <laughs> I don't know. That's speculation. Good question. Uh, but, you know, another thing that a lot of people will assume that the age of Pisces ends around 2012. And, and to me, that's it's neat stuff to ponder, but I don't care to, to go into it because it's not provable until it happens. Right. But okay. um, So leaving with, uh, or, or we've we've gone from Christmas up to the spring equinox and how the the precession is measured by the rising of the sun due east uh, on uh, on the vernal equinox. Mm-hmm. So now, since we're at the vernal equinox, we might as well talk about Easter and uh, the history of Easter is actually a fertility a fertility excuse me celebration. And Ishtar Astarte uh, was a, a really an ancient goddess of fertility, which is where we get the name Easter from and. As we show in our book, Ishtar, Astarte, and Easter can be broken down, to, uh, linguistically speaking, to be shown as, as deriving from East and Star. Mm-hmm. So basically, the Star in the East is the Sun. So Easter, Easter is a is the spring fertility uh, of of the returning of the Sun and and warmth in the spring. And why that was significant is because. At the end of winter, you know, during the winter, everything that wasn't strong enough to survive died and and froze. So, uh, you know, the sun was thought to fall to its death. And, you know, like I said, the, the sun stopped moving for three days above the 66.5 degree latitude line. The, the sun literally disappeared from view. Mm-hmm. For three days in the tomb. For three days. So... So how is Christmas related to Easter, though? Because we have the three days in the tomb that's, of course, related to in the Christian right. tradition in Easter. Well, well it's part of the, the fertility and the death and rebirth, but 
It actually shows up in Halloween also, the three days. Really? So it's a repeated thing that they're just trying to get across here. Right, and, and, and I think it's just symbolic of the, of the three-day story of the winter solstice. Um, and Easter happens to be nine months from the next Christmas, from the, next, the birth of the next sun. Mm-hmm. So you have the fertility worship uh, for Easter with Astarte and everything, and then you go nine months forward to the birth of the sun, and the whole cycle repeats again. But um, with Easter, if, if anybody doubts that Easter is an astrotheological uh, sun star worship-based uh, holiday, uh, let me explain how Easter is derived. First, we wait for the vernal or the spring equinox, and then we wait for the first full moon, of the, or what they call the pastoral full moon, and then we celebrate East Star, East, Easter East Star, on the following sun day. Mm. And, uh, so <laughs> yeah, because Easter moves, right? It doesn't right. on the same, it's not on the same day every year, right? Because, right. because of the, because the Gregorian calendar is so screwed up, but, but that's a whole nother story. And then, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the, the Pentecost falls on the, on the eve of the 40, uh, the 50th day, uh, after Easter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we go, we go around the the circle of uh, of the, the seasons, and it and it really tells us the entire story of the religions on this macrocosmic level. And then on the microcosmic level, uh, these psychedelic substances were used during these celebrations. Just like today, people on New Year's uh, and New Year's was originally Christmas Day. The the day today that we celebrate New Year's on is another farce. Um, <laughs> but uh, people still get intoxicated today, mind you, with alcohol. But originally, yeah. it was primarily with entheogenic or psychedelic drugs. It's, it's sort of whatever they let you do, you know. Right. Well, and hey, uh, I tell you what. Let me let me let me cut you off just uh, briefly here. We're right at the top of the hour, okay, Jan? Okay. Going to have to take a brief break here, and um, but let's come back. We're we're sort of back to uh, to, to the to the topic of. Um, of the entheogenic substances. So let's continue with that after the break here. And, and we can talk a little bit about the pharmacratic inquisition and what that really is all about, okay? Sure. All right, cool. Back in just a minute. Everybody, it's Jan Irvin. You can find information on the web. Uh, the best place to start is GnosticMedia.com. That's G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Media.com. And you can link there directly from my site as well over at MikeHagan.com. All right, great stuff, and a very interesting program we're here in the middle of. we got another hour with Jan, so we'll uh, come back in just a minute here. In the meantime, we'll play another song from, uh, from Revolve. This is a song that's called Leading. It's real cool, and uh, we'll have Jan tell us a little bit about it after the song because it's involved in a, uh, a promotional video, I think, that these guys did too. But anyway, here it is. It's called Leading one more time. The band is called Revolve. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM.
All right. Yeah, I love it. That's Revolve again. That song is called Leading, and uh, there's a wonderful video actually that's a, that's accompanied uh, with that. And uh, I just I just actually posted the web address uh, to download the uh, the video and the music that I just played, and it's up there on the uh, in the chat room. But uh, you can also get that uh, directly from uh, from Jan's site over there at Gnostic Media. And anyway, we'll get back to Jan here. It's Mike. Uh, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Jan, great stuff, man. Thank you. That is uh, Bernard Ryan Kuiji, uh, who some people may know. He was a uh, lead guitarist of Static X and uh, Matt, oh, yeah, lead singer. Static X, sure. Yeah. So uh, that's that's actually the the band uh, when Kuiji left. He left to join Revolve. Yeah, I like I like it better than Static X, actually. Yeah. Uh, I like it quite a bit better, personally. Yeah. All right. Well, um, tell us a little bit about that real quick here before we go back to where we were, cause, because there is a, a video associated. You guys are using that as a promotional vehicle? or? Yeah. Well, what we did was about two years ago uh, when we first met the, the guys from uh, Revolve, we put together a little music video to the song leading just sort of uh, timing uh, some of the images from our video, et cetera, some of our work to the the music and put it out there just sort of to see what would happen, and people liked it, and, uh, you know, so we just kind of put it out there. It's, you know, the, the, the video, the little music video says that our book is uh, titled differently than it ended up being in the end, but, uh, you know, you can ignore that. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Uh, before the break, we had, we had, we've talked about Christmas. We're moving through the year as far as the calendar is, is concerned. And, and we've been sort of introducing this idea of astrotheology, the idea that, that religions in general, it seems, were based at least, well, not at least, but primarily upon things that were happening up there in the skies above our heads. Yes, uh, and... And with the the drugs that they took on the ground, like I said earlier, such as the Native Americans with peyote and everything, all of these these different uh, astrotheological events, uh, they came along with rituals and celebrations that would often include uh, fertility and uh, psychedelic drug or entheogenic uh, drug use. But you know, today a lot of people think of that as some horrible thing because of because there's just so much misinformation about these substances out there today, so much propaganda and fear out there. But um, Hey, uh, Jan, can I ask you a question real quick that's sort of a, a little bit of a left turn? Sure. I was just thinking about it tonight as we've been talking about it, but I have a tradition that I carry as part of my, my historical background is Lakota Sioux, Native American. Okay. And one of the, one of the woods that's sacred to the Lakota is is cedar. And I never really thought about it until now. Uh, but I wonder if it has any connection to... Because because there's not particularly a, a tradition of entheogenic substances, at least not uh, apparently, in the history of you know the Plains Indians. Uh, well, but certainly there was a tradition of shamanism or, or something to that extent. And the sweat lodge uh, experiences were testament to that and, and things like that. But, but they never really spoke much. Uh, about substances, plants. Well, and uh, not all tribes used them, and a lot of them lost uh, the knowledge. And some of the things that they practiced were remnants left over from mm. uh, migrations uh, from Siberia, etc., depending on if they migrated trans-Pacifically or across the Bering Strait coming, uh, coming downward. 
Um, but uh, it's it's on a couple of different levels with the tree. It could be, like I said, remnants of the mushroom worship and the celebration of the tree. But also, the tree is symbolic, uh, like I said before, for one, because it's an evergreen and because it survives. It stays green during this dark, cold, dead time of winter when everything else dies. And uh, another thing that it represents on the on the macrocosm is the Axis Mundi or the World Tree, the Yggdrasil Tree. And then uh, it also, on the fertility level, um, like the the phallic appearance of the mushroom itself, it is also um, uh, a, a male phallic symbol, just like the obelisk and a lot of other symbolism. That's really interesting because you know the the, the mushroom presents itself as a male symbol, but the experience is is primarily feminine. Well, it depends, um, it, and that is something that I often thought too, but I've uh, started digging more into a different side of the research on shamanism mm-hmm. that, uh, that I can really thank um, uh, Dr. Neil Whitehead, uh, a professor of anthropology at, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, I was turned on to his work by another professor from the University of Kansas, and he wrote a couple of books on dark shamanism that mm. really revealed an entire other aspect of shamanism that most of the books even refused to talk about. Right, the, the sorcery side, the nasty right. side. Right, right. And right. you know, m- most of the books out there on shamanism, and I'll admit that uh, our, we didn't know about this information until the, the week our book went to print. So uh, our book is even void of it in, in large part. Uh, at this point, but um, dark shamanism is 50% of shamanism, just like night is 50% of a day. You know, you can't right. have one without the other. Right. And, uh, and like know, all these things, it's 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 a manipulation of energy and relationships with other things, and it can be used for you know. I mean, well, not not just that, but uh, you know, the shaman not only knew the plants that could cause uh, spiritual bliss, but they knew the plants that could heal, and they knew the plants that could kill as well. Right, right. Um, You know, and uh, there's, in fact, there's a PBS documentary on the Zulu that a friend of mine pointed out to me the other day that uh, talks about how the Zulu in Africa would use um, uh, cannabis and Amanita muscaria to go to war, and this is in this PBS documentary. Hmm. And uh, How so? What What do you mean they would use them to go to war? Well, there's a, a couple of different people that talk about it. Uh, like, if you remember the Norse and the Berserkers, they would take Amanita before they went to war as well. Oh, oh, and oh, uh, oh. basically, you know, if you have to fight, you might as well be as uh, in tune as you can possibly be before going to war. And uh, Amanita seems to give extra, uh, enable people to to have do feats of strength right, that they normally heightened, wouldn't be able to do. Right, heightened skill, uh, like agility, balance, those, those sort of exactly. things are, are much increased, certainly. Okay. Just like some of the things that, uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, Carlos Castaneda, but some of the amazing feats he talks about in, in his books, uh, you can you know accomplish some of those things under Amanita. People are known to be able to withstand extreme cold, um, be able to jump, uh, you know, very far distances in a single leap and things like that all mm-hmm. under, under that that mushroom. Interesting. Um, and, and, and maybe, again, now as I just speculate, you know, I think about, you know, legends of superheroes and this sort of thing. But Well, and, and that's, a, you know, I've got friends. Uh, Andy, in fact, has a friend in Texas who's been working on a project looking at all the 
superhero stories and everything. And in fact, uh, the letter S is always symbolic of God and knowledge, the, Gnost the Gnostic serpent S. Uh, in fact, if you look in Oxford Dictionary, it says uh, S is the, the letter of God, and then you put uh, S foot or S foot or S blood, S blood, etc. in front of it, God's blood, God's foot, um, etc., etc. Um, you know, so that's, it's, there's a lot more to that that, uh, that Andy's friend will hopefully uh, publish a book on that one of these days. But um, a lot of the, you know, the 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 fairy tales and uh, you know the cartoons just about all of this stuff is is based on these these experiences um the experience of Jonah and the whale the guy is uh, experiencing the negative hell brought on by the experience and not letting go and then going back up and having the, the blissful experience and this is all told in the story of Jonah and the whale and in the, the book of revelation as well um but uh, what I wanted to do is sort of skip back over to talking about the, the seasons and the holidays, or if you're uh, ready to go back there. Sure, that's fine. And in fact, I'm going to have you, uh, uh, I'm going to have you sort of uh, uh, spin your yarn for a moment here because I'm going to step into the other room and, and reinitiate my stream because I had a little bit of trouble with the computer. So, so just go ahead and start. And, and don't worry, I've, I'm, I'm listening the whole time, and I'll jump right back in here in just 30 40 seconds or so, but uh, uh, just uh, go ahead and continue, and I'll be back in just a moment, okay, yeah? You got it. All right, great. All right, well, the tradition of the, the summer solstice, which is June 21st, is the symbol of uh, the lion in the sky, and we see the symbol of the lion in a lot of the symbology, and several thousand years ago during the summer solstice, uh, the lion was at the peak of the sky under the summer solstice. And so this is where this symbology comes from. And as well, uh, different cultures worshipped uh, the summer solstice as New Year, uh, just as we do uh, the winter solstice as New Year. And um, so, and in fact, other cultures continuing around uh, the the cycle of the, of the seasons, uh, we can talk about Halloween, and Halloween was actually another New Year, and it was the the Celtic New Year that they celebrated on uh, on November 1st, and then the, the Catholic Church came along and created All Saints Day, and uh, I mentioned earlier that the three days being... Uh, you know, celebrated. They had All Saints Day, and then uh, one other day that they celebrated. Uh, I'm just trying to remember what it was called. All Souls Day. All Souls Day. Okay. Right. And uh, you know, so November first was originally though the the pagan New Year. I, I, I hate to use the word pagan because pagan was simply a Latin word that meant rural, the the rural, the country people. Right, the people from the from the forest, the people. Right. Sort of, and they were sort of like Earth people too. Right. You it, know? It's sort of like our slang term today, redneck, except a little bit different. You right, know. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a but, compliment, uh, by the way. Yes, a compliment, <laughs> by the way. Right. Uh, but we have, and we have the three days at at uh, Easter with the and it's in the three days of Christmas mm -hmm. and then we have the three days with uh, Hallow's Eve coming on on the day before uh the day before uh 
Samhain. Actually, Samhain was Hallow's Eve in, in Irish. Right, Samhain or Samhain, yeah. Samhain. And uh, so these are the three days being celebrated once again. And I need to look more into the celebration of that and see if the calendar could have been set askew to mark that off. But these were the, the fire festivals of the ancient Celts. And during the, the fire festival, they burned the Yule log, and the Yule log was, would burn for 12 days. But uh, there were also celebrations where the, 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 fire, the, the fire festivals where they would burn the, the, the fire for three days. And with Halloween, what it was a celebration of was basically the, uh, they, they believed because it was the end of summertime, it was the end of the harvest. And so the, the, the animals that weren't strong enough to survive the winter, et cetera, were, uh, were slaughtered for food, et cetera, to last through the winter. And so this was a time of death. It was a time of cutting the crops down, of killing the, the, the weaker animals that couldn't survive and things like that, and preparing for the next, uh, for the next year. So, uh, this is why in Mexico it's, it's celebrated as Dia de los Muertos. Dia de los Muertos. The Day of the Dead. Yeah. The Day of the Dead. Hmm. And, uh, and it's the, the what they believed was that the dead could easily pass between the worlds during this time. So they uh, would go out and dress in these costumes and things to scare the demons from occupying their homes uh, uh, before the next year. And then just before, right at the end of the celebration, they would all blow out the, the fires in their homes and then light the new fire for the next year with uh, the, with the fire from the the fire festival. Mm. And so this is how they continued the symbology. It was the cycle of the fire was representing the cycle of the sun on the macrocosm. So it, it, the sun died and was reborn. So so did the the fire that was used in in the Celtic uh, celebrations. And then. Uh, What's interesting is how trick-or-treating began was they would go around and they would collect what were called soul cakes. And uh, these soul cakes were made with raisins and, or currants or whatever. And when, when I, one interesting thing I found when uh, I was researching what the, what the uh, soul cakes were made out of, uh, they were, this currant is a crimson red flower. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, I think it goes directly back to another adaptation where they lost the original mushrooms, so they adapted these soul cakes. And as we show in our book, uh, soul is sun, and S-O-U-L, your soul, is directly related to the sun above. Right, right. So they would eat the soul cakes, which is also the manna and, uh, you know, uh, soma, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let me uh, let me jump in here because uh, there, the synchronicity is upon me, so I have to do this. Uh, there's a gentleman or a gentlewoman on or in the chat room, I should say, who goes by the name of Soul, and uh, he or she has posted a question up here. It says, "Does Mr. Irvin believe that the current world's quote war on drugs slash war on magic plants started in 1620 when the church made the mushroom use by the native Aztecs illegal?" Uh, and then in parentheses, they say sacred mushroom versus the wafer and the wine. 
Well, we actually show that uh, the suppression of uh, entheogenic plants and substances happened much earlier than that in our book and in the video. Um, Socrates is a good example. He was uh, forced to drink uh, hemlock because he was, as Manly P. Hall reveals in The Secret Teachings of All Ages, he was revealing the, the secrets of the uh Kaikian elixir to the masses, and he mm -hmm. had not been initiated into the mysteries, mm -hmm. and uh, he was basically smarter than everybody else and figured it out on his own. <laughs> so he, you know, they forced him uh, to drink hemlock as punishment for right. for teaching people about a spiritual psychedelic substance. Was so that's. One of the first documented cases, and then uh, Chris Bennett uh, wrote a book uh, that primarily focuses on cannabis in the Bible uh, called Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, and he talks about uh, references with, uh, uh, what is uh, the book of law, uh, Deuteronomy being uh, one of the first instances of, uh, of total uh, uh, drug suppression, and he traces it back to, I think, four or actually, I think, 600, 650 BCE. Wow. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it, and, it, and it probably goes back even further than that. Oh, yeah. It, you know, and the, you know, the, the, you know witches, uh, the suppression of witches and um, the inquisitions and everything were, you know, 50% of all women uh, who lived in Europe were killed during the inquisitions by being accused for witchcraft, right, et cetera. Right. Hey, you know, I'm, again, I'm thinking about language and stuff, and I think of Socrates. Was the is the English word "secret" related to Socrates? I well, I, I think a "secret" is related to "sacred," and it's another mm -hmm. "s" word. I've I've mm -hmm. looked at that a little bit before, and I don't remember it off the top of my head. I'd have to dig yeah, into notes. Just, just curiously. So. But Socrates probably related to "sacred." Who knows? Right. Right. Um, but uh, going back to the witchcraft, uh, one thing a lot of your listeners may not know is that uh, you know that we have the symbol of the witch flying during Halloween, and uh, just oh, like another flying thing, another flying thing, just like the flying reindeer, and right. uh, everybody thought that this was just a made-up story that came out of nowhere, you know. But uh, the the story of the flying witch, and in fact, Richard Evan Schultes has documentation in his books. He was a Major ethnobotanist from Harvard, very famous all over the world. Right, um, trained a lot of guys that have done great work over the years. Right, exactly. And uh, Wade Davis, etc. Um, but he found uh, evidence dating to the 14th century, the 1300s, that uh, showed uh, witch trials where they were uh, trying witches because they were making uh, anointments with belladonna and henbane and uh, you know frogs. Most people don't know that the frog, that you know, the the wart toads and things that we get uh, associated with, which is frogs, actually contain a drug called 5-methoxy and DMT, which yeah, is yeah. one of the most powerful entheogens out there, and a real bizarre one too. Yes, but uh, going back to the witch real quick, uh, the witches would make these ointments and then they would rub them on uh, the, the the broom handle and insert them into the vagina because of the closed surface capillaries in the genital region. <laughs> so this is how the witches took flight and then they would fly off to the uh to the you know to the witch uh 
celebration. Right, and right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, most of these traditions are based on astrotheology and shamanism, hmm. and you know, there's a lot of fertility wrapped up in this stuff as well. Absolutely. And in fact, we're, yeah, I mean, sure, and, and I guess, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about about the repression of the feminine then, because that's what all, the, or that's what a, a significant part of this is about. Oh yeah, well, and in fact, uh, hey, you want to hear? The, hey, you want to hear something real funny, really fast? Actually, it's not funny. I guess it's funny, strange. You know, an interesting thing about 5-methoxy DMT. What's that? It will kill a sheep. Really? Yeah, it's very strange. It's 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 one of the only substances that will kill another mammal, like literally immediately. It'll kill a sheep in a matter of seconds, right? I've not heard that. Absolutely true, and. Uh, so I don't know what that means. I, what I that think means. just about all mammals produce it, though. Well, we all produce dimethyltryptamine. Well, we also right. produce uh, 5-methoxy as well. No, I didn't know that all mammals do. Yeah, 5-methoxy is, a, I, I believe so, that uh, that we all carry both. Huh. Well, interesting, because the, the, there is this, this documented uh, uh, phenomenon that happens with sheep. And, I, and, and in fact... The only way, the only reason that I that, that I that I knew it originally was because Terrence, t- you know, Terrence and I were friends years ago. But he said, and he said the funniest thing with them about it. He said, "Well, I guess it's a good way to find out if you're a sheep or not." <laughs> you know, because uh, you know, with regard to human beings taking it. But at, at any rate, uh, that's a very clever of Terrence. Of course, right. Uh, what else could he be? Yeah. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so, so let's uh, let, let's continue on here. Well. Uh, <clears throat> Which direction were we heading again? Let's see. Okay, we were uh, we were talking about oh god, well we were talking about sheep. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, well, I just finished talking about uh, Halloween, or not really finished. Right. We were, well, we were talking about the witches and about uh, about how how they uh, how they went to the witch party and how it's really sort of a representation of the same theme again. Yeah, it really is, and uh, and how all of these things are based on astrotheology and shamanism, basically. Let's see. Where do we want to take this from? Well, here let's talk. Let, let, let's talk about. You know, the word pharmacratic is one that we've I've mentioned a few okay. times. We've talked about the website. Let's talk a little bit about the repression that's happening right now. I mean, because uh, we've we've shown pretty clearly that, that that there's a grand history of this stuff that goes back as far as we can trace it. It's global, uh, and uh, it appears that many of the, if not all. Of the ancient traditions and the and and the big religions that we all bow to or that many of us do uh, are related to these topics. Yet, yet we've been blocked off from a big part of it that could maybe be very beneficial to at least some of us. So, and and we at least should have the option of uh, of uh, you know determining these sorts of things for ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about where we are today, and 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 why so few people are still aware of these things. Yeah, and it's uh, it's you know most people don't uh, realize that freedom of religion, uh, most religions are based on psychedelic and entheogenic drugs. So any any war on drugs is a direct attack war on, on religion. religion. You know, I mentioned earlier that that, that I have a Lakota uh, a bloodline, and you know, for the Lakota and the Plains Indians, it was important to move around. It was. It was imperative. It was part of their religion, in other words, because they were astrotheological. They looked to the heavens. And the reason that they moved camp oftentimes was because of positions of stars and constellations and this sort of thing. So they were, they, they were a people that moved around by necessity. Their religion required it of them. And when they were 
you know, roped off into reservations and this sort of thing. It was literally an attack on their religion. It it, it was, and uh, actually that is still happening. What most people don't realize is that most of the people being persecuted as uh, Mexican immigrants are actually indigenous peoples that have been marginalized and forced off of their land time and time and time again. And... Uh, happening again now but with the pharmacratic inquisition uh, the term actually originates from a very well-known ethnobotanist named Jonathan Ott and pharma pharma means drug like we have the word pharmacy and uh, uh, pharmacopeia which are all the drugs known etc pharmacology pharmacology etc and then uh, uh, cratic means ruling, like we have democratic, that's a mob or democracy ruling, mob ruling. Right, right, and technocrats and this sort of crat and that sort of crat. Exactly. Right. And uh, so the drug ruling inquisition, pharmacratic inquisition, and what we're saying by that name is that the inquisitions uh, were actually... Uh, based on the suppression of, of drugs, and uh, how do we argue that? Well, if you look at the people that the Catholic Church was after and was suppressing, the so-called pagans, the rural people, were the people, the, the tribal people, that still maintain this knowledge and uh, were still passing it down, the so-called heathens the, you know, that uh, wouldn't take the forced story of uh, a literal Jesus' character and all of this stuff, uh, you know, and uh, so they killed him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but this this pharmacratic inquisition, um, I guess, you know, like I mentioned earlier, probably 650 BCE was when it started. Right, it's been and it's, forever. You know, the, it was really amplified in the 1100s, uh, I think, uh, who was it? Benedict or one of those guys, we have that in our book too, that uh, enacts the inquisitions to go out and slaughter the pagans or the rural people, the country people. And um, so that's what that was about. And the, the country people also maintained the the knowledge of the, the stars, and it was um, very important for the Catholic Church to eradicate those people uh, because you couldn't force Rome's dogma uh, on the people, unless uh, you know, if, if you had people that still continued this knowledge. So today, it survives as myth and fairy tale. But these myths and fairy tales were there for a reason, because you know these were the stories and traditions passed down by the shaman on how to use the the plants and drugs and how to observe the sun as it passed through the sky each year, and to to know that. Uh, um, to know when to plant and when to harvest, and uh, if you didn't know this type of information, you died. You mm-hmm. didn't have a calendar on your wall or on your computer that popped up and said, "Oh, hey, it's time it's to time plant. to harvest the crop today." You know, that's not right. how things happen. So, right, right, right. You know, it would be interesting if it was Benedict, seeing as we have another Benedict in the in the in the papal office these days. You know, you read so much, and yeah, uh, no, no, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just. Names, names get curious about it. No doubt, they get all mixed the up. The more so. you learn, uh, you know, you squeeze something in one side and <laughs> something else pops out the other. You know, <laughs> no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. All right, well, uh, well, let's see. What was I going to ask you uh, with, with with regard to the? I think it was Pope Gregory. 
Gregory. All right. Pope okay. Gregory or Pope Innocent. Well, there you go. Hardly, right? Yeah. So I guess one of the questions that I have is all these substances and these ideas and the traditions were hidden and eliminated, and the people that practiced them were were were, were genocidally destroyed. Were the were the traditions held on to though? In other words, are the are the top people in the Vatican eating mushrooms? You know, I mean, <laughs> really, I mean, because it seems to me for anybody who's done these things, I mean, you're not gonna you're not going to throw something like that away. Uh, you, you may you may try to hide it from other people, but if you have any wits about you whatsoever, you're probably not going to throw it away. But the strange thing about it, it, all, it I was going to say that it also has sort of a built-in safety mechanism, but that's not the case, really, because we, we mentioned earlier that we do have this the, the dark side of this whole business. Exactly, and that's, you know, looking at the whole suppressive issue of it is, uh, you know, something that really got me interested in studying the dark side. And as I was working on astrotheology and shamanism, it was a subject that uh, kept coming up over and over that we couldn't avoid like so many people before us had. And very few people have tackled that subject uh, head on. Um, But uh, the... As we show in our video and, and some of the images in the book, if you look at the, the gowns and the dress of the bishops and cardinals and the popes, uh, they dress exactly like the Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And in fact, on the pharmacraticinquisition.com website, you can see a few of the pictures that I have up there. I've got probably several hundred pictures that show uh, popes dressed like uh, Amanitas. And some of them, you put the two together and it's just... Hmm. Undeniable, yeah, I've how, seen how so similar they are. Yeah, they wear the red cape with the white undergarment, and but you know, you're asking, did did they carry that up into the modern day? And uh, Dan Merker is, was a professor at Syracuse, and uh, he wrote a book called The Mystery of Manna, and he in that book argued that that the uh, knowledge of the entheogens uh, was was capped up up until the 13th or 14th century. And then uh, another researcher and friend of mine, Michael Hoffman, who runs a website called egodeath.com, he has uh, furthered that research, and he believes he can bring it up at least into the 1700s. Um, do we have any proof that they're doing it today? Unless somebody comes out and absolutely admits it, we can't prove it, but there is certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding the idea. You know, and they certainly do know the, the astrotheological knowledge today. They still use the symbolism. St. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, uh, the, on Easter morning, even the sun shines through from the east and comes through this big, bright, uh, thing that lights up the sky and it shows Jesus being born and the angels raising up and everything. So they know this, and uh, or at least the architects did, and I'm sure that the popes and uh, the higher people in these, you know, and the Catholic Church is really just a, a, a sort of bastardized mystery school. It's like the, the bastard child of the ancient mystery schools. You know, it's funny because I've actually been to the Vatican, and one of the first things you see when you walk in the front door of the big giant vestibule there is a, a, a giant copper or bronze depiction of the globe of the Earth surrounded by the zodiac. 
Up yeah, east, exactly. You know? And, and it's, like, the, it's like, wait a minute, I was a Catholic yeah. kid, and they told me that astrology and this and that, and, and this is the main symbol of when you walk in St. Peter's. If you, if you go to the Venetian in uh, Las Vegas, uh, right when you walk in, it's, it's, it's right there in front right, of you Same also. thing, because they, they tried to make a replica, right. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, we, a few years ago, my co-author and I walked through Vegas and just took hundreds, hundreds of photographs of all the symbolism and everything that they use in Vegas. It's an insane amount of, of symbolism. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to the Vatican, you know, we show a picture in our book. You have the obelisk outside of the Vatican, and then you have the dome of the Vatican, which is two parts. First, the dome is uh, representative of, of the female and the holiest of holies. The inner parts of the of the church was called the holiest of holies. So is the, the woman's genitalia is the holiest of holies, the womb. And then outside the Vatican, you have this huge obelisk. And if you stand directly in front of the obelisk and look head on to the Vatican, it forms a huge Amanita muscaria mushroom. Mm-hmm. With the with the obelisk forming the stipe, you have the veil falling down with the with the dome of the Vatican being the top of the mushroom. Um, you know, and that's you know that's that same thing is is symbolized in uh, in Washington D.C. with the Washington Monument. With the Washington Monument, you have the big obelisk, and you have the waters of life flowing up to the Oval Office. And as I mentioned, the symbol of the Oval is the symbol of the female mm-hmm. genitalia. And then the president sits in the Oval Office, which is the holiest of holies. Mm. Amazing! Wow. You know, I'm not sure if I found it snooping around from your site or linking from your site, but I came across something over the last couple of days as I was thinking and sort of concentrating on this stuff prior to our show about Galileo and when he was brought before the Inquisition to basically refute everything that he was saying about the way he believed the world worked, you know, he basically said the earth was round and that it moved and this sort of thing, right? Right. And they were... and. And basically, he was being told that you know he would have to refute all of these ideas, or he would be. Yeah, the, the Catholic Church believed that the Earth stood firm. Right, it was either flat and right, it was and flat earth you know the, the Sun revolved around the Earth. The right. Earth was the center of the world, not the Sun. Right, the Sun was the the head of the sky god's penis that went around the world and penetrated into the womb of the Mother Earth, creating all life. And the falling rains were the were the semen penetrating into the earth, giving the earth life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, you know the 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 earth, the female, um, was being once again the holiest of holies, being the center, and then the sun going into it around it, not the other way around. And um, you know, and you you wanted to talk earlier about the suppression of women. Uh, yeah, for the for the most part. Women, and, and we show a lot of this in our book, some of it in the video, uh, women have really been completely removed from religion. I mentioned Astarte and uh, Easter earlier, Ishtar, etc., mm-hmm. and the old fertility cults. And, you know, in, in the old times, women were considered equally uh, a part of uh, creation and the, and the divine. In fact, the, a lot of the uh, Nodj... Is it uh, a lot of the Naj Hammadi documents show? In fact, I think it's on the Origins of the World show uh, a reversal 
of of the characters. Uh, Adam doesn't give birth to Eve. He uh, uh, Eve gives birth to Adam. Of course, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and these these Boys stories are all babies. yeah. These stories are all suppressed. You know, and um, and in fact, if you look at the old alchemical drawings and everything, you can see a pattern up at, up at some point. All of a sudden, all of the female symbolism just disappears, like Libertas and and. Uh, the different goddesses, the the, the Greek god, uh, goddesses and everything, and were or, and all of the Greek gods were suppressed as as pagan. But really, women were completely pushed out. And then the only thing people were given were, were this false idea of this virgin uh, Mary. And uh, but all equal action in church and everything was completely removed from women. In fact, women were forbidden in uh, most of the monasteries. <laughs> the the moon asters, where they studied the stars, right. typically had 12 months that represented the, the right. zodiac. You and, know? and Yeah, for people, if you didn't recognize what he's saying there, monastery is... Yeah, mon is moon and aster is stars, so a monastery. And then you have... Uh, um, uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of these things. Michael right. Sarin talks about mm-hmm. that, and we talk about it a little bit in our book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, and the women that do make it through get completely morphed into war gods or something like Athena, you know, or something like that. Uh, exactly. And uh, here I was just looking, trying to spot a, remember some of these other things here, give your listeners. But um, it's not too important. I'm not spotting it right off the bat here. But uh, pastor, actually, that's another one. Pastor is you have father and aster, star. And then, uh, you know, so many of these are, are direct symbols of, of astro theology. And uh, they would study uh, the stars and take drugs primarily. And that's what the religions were based on. And there's a lot of, like I said, a lot of fertility and sexuality mixed in. And we're actually beginning a book on uh, the sexual aspects of fertility we're starting a book is going to be something to the effect of sex and drugs in the history of religion huh. where we're going to really start pulling together a lot of that information what did you say this is going to be a long book <laughs> uh, well hopefully not too long hopefully we can summarize it succinctly but yeah there's a, a lot of information in there could could you could you chat for a moment about alchemy and the connection between these things and alchemy? Well, alchemy is is really sort of the same teachings. Uh, in large part, alchemy is twofold. You have the study of converting metals and things like that, and a lot of people think it's totally uh, fake, but uh, there's a lot of research out there showing that the study of alchemy was real, and uh, Manly P. Hall wrote a very good book called uh, Orders of the Great Work, Alchemy, uh, which I recommend your listeners get into if they want to know more about it. But alchemy uh, was also two levels. You had the outer level that the priests and kings could see and the masses could see that de- dealt with metallurgy. And then you had the, the suppressed or hidden uh, amb- ambiguous parts of the research that uh, dealt with finding the ultimate philosopher's stone and uh, the entheogens. So it was just a way for another way for this information to be spread around between different people and different masters as they you know uh, perform their research uh, they had to to find 
ways to encode it so that they wouldn't be killed by the uh, inquisitors. Hmm. So everything was being hidden underground, etc. Yeah, it's, it was. In, yeah, in fact, uh, you, know, you can really look at uh, alchemy as the art of deception. Interesting. Yeah, because that's the way it had to be done, right? Exactly. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, a very good book your uh, listeners might be interested in is uh, Folk. Excuse me, Fulcanelli's book, uh, The Mystery of the Cathedrals. Mystery of the Cathedrals. Yeah, you know, uh, Jay Widener is a friend of mine. I don't know if you know Jay, but. Uh, he and a, a co-author named Vince Bridge, Vincent Bridges wrote a book back in 98, I guess, or so, 97 maybe, called uh, Fulcanelli and the Grand Cross. Uh, it has to do with this particular monument in a, in a small town in France, of course, which is mentioned at the, in the last chapter of that particular book that you mentioned. But at any rate, I'm very familiar with the story of Fulcanelli, and I'm, many of my listeners are too. So, Oh, good to hear. All right. Well, um, look, we've got about five minutes or so. So let's uh, try to wrap things up a little bit. Maybe you can finish off with anything that you'd like to. Uh, uh, anything that you'd like to, I guess. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Hmm. I guess. Uh, let me let me peek in the chat chat room too and see if anybody yeah, has any yeah, questions for you. Yeah, why don't you peek you. in there and see if uh, anybody else has anything to say? Well, the, this has popped up a couple of times tonight. Actually, there have been a number of people that are asking about James Arthur and and if you have anything to say about uh, his unfortunate. Uh, passing a, a couple of years ago. Well, James James Arthur uh, got himself into an unfortunate mess, and uh, you know I don't really want to get into it too much, but um, you know he committed uh, suicide in in jail. He was arrested for uh, pedophilia and uh, was awaiting trial and committed suicide before his trial. Is so. that right? Um, you know, and it, I knew him and talked to him on the phone a lot, and we exchanged a lot of research. It was, it was a big shock to me when I found out, and, uh, you know, he's unfortunately created a, 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 a sort of a, a mess, but, um, you know, it's a, a lot of people try and say, uh, you know, just because we knew him and talked to him on the phone or whatever, that uh, we're related to him somehow, so... Uh, but he, his work has its merits and uh, I think stands on its own. I agree with that. Regardless of, uh, of what was going down in his personal life, I was blown away when I was uh, originally, uh, originally exposed to some of his material. Yeah, and, and uh, I, you know, when I came across his research, it was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, I had been researching the entheogen side and it never really had dawned on me to, study astrotheology right the religious and the astronomical side of it right and he was the he was the one that sort of pointed that out but then i sort of pointed out to him that they were uh, causal associative that uh, it was macro micro that they weren't separate and that's really what our book astrotheology and shamanism is astrotheology is above and shamanism below but uh yeah that's any other questions that they have uh let's see um could the Hindu sacred plant Soma have been a cold weather loving cubensis mushroom instead of the Amanita? Well, I guess there's a, I guess there's a general question about the relationship between the Amanita and then the the uh, you know the Stropharia, the psilocybin mushrooms that that were so prevalent south of the border. Right. Well, I you know, and we we talk about that in our book, and in fact, uh, we think that the Amanita was used further north than the 
the uh, psilocybes were used further south, um, and uh, you know some people will. I know some researchers are adamant that it could have only been Amanita muscaria, and I I disagree. I, it probably initially uh, it was most likely just Amanita and or psilocybe, um, because both Shiva and Vishnu and and uh, Krishna, et cetera, are depicted as, uh, like I've got a, a picture on my wall here of uh, Krishna and, and Radha, and uh, Krishna is blue and it looks exactly like the philosophy and Radha is uh, red and, and white. <laughs> so, <laughs> and she looks exactly like the Amanita, and they're standing uh, next to each other, and um, Krishna even has the cow directly to his right, and, of course, philosophy come from cow manure so um, there's definitely that connection there and then if you if your listeners read uh, Christian Ratch's book uh, Shamanism and Tantra in the Himalayas he co-authored that with uh, Mueller Ebling and and Shai Uh, he he shows in that book that there were actually a hundred and eight plants dedicated to Shiva alone that were entheogenic. A hundred and eight alone. A hundred and eight, and I think he claims to have found eighty-eight of them or eighty-six of them, something like that, so far. And we have that quoted in our book as well. Amazing. But yeah, soma was was definitely entheogenic, and you know I'm not really concerned over. You know, yeah, I, 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 I think it was soma was either an admixture of of many things, and like I said, I know there's a researcher or two out there that will scream up and down that it could have only been amanita, but um, I think it was an admixture of different things, or it was a, a generic term like we use psychedelic today. Right. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure, man. Incredible uh, stuff. We could talk for. A long, long time, I think. So I think we'll probably have to uh, think about doing it again. Well, thank you for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and we'll uh, we'll get this thing uh, downloaded up uh, off of my system here, and I'll get it uh, up on the web tomorrow, so we can share it with some other people. Okay. Good. All right, uh, uh, Jan. Give been... my web address out again. Yeah, let's do that one more time. We've got uh, a couple of them. The first one, Gnostic Media, G N O S T I C Media. Dot com, And I guess that's the main one. From there, you can get over to Pharmacratic Inquisition. But there's lots of things uh, to, to link to from Gnostic Media. So I guess that's the best place to start. Right. And, and uh, if you go to the link, links page on Gnostic Media, we've got some uh, other websites out there as well. But those are the two main ones that we use. And a great list of, uh, of, of books as well that you guys obviously have uh, drawn from and that you, rec- and that you rec- recommend that other people take a look at. Uh, very much so. Okay. People people really need to get out there and read and discover on their own if they want to learn uh, what life and all of this stuff is about. No doubt, man. And and uh, and I'd like to say that the uh, the video that you guys produced. I'm not sure when you did it, but uh, how, how many years old is the Pharmacratic Inquisition video? Well, the first uh, one we actually uh, finished recording it. Uh, in April 2004, uh, it was actually the day that James Arthur was arrested that we were wrapping up shooting the last 30 minutes of shooting when we got the phone call. Amazing. All right. Well, everybody, I recommend that you go and take a look at that as well. You can download it for free, and uh, it's three hours and some odd minutes long and well worth your time. So, all right, Jan, one more time. Thanks big time, and uh, I'll be in touch, okay? 
You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. All right, everybody, take care. Uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, come on back next week. We'll have Bard's Quill, Kent Stedman, the wonderful wizard of cyberspaceorbit.com. Stick around. In a few minutes, we'll have Jeff Wheeler playing some tunes for you for the next few hours, and we'll finish things up here with one more song from Revolve. This one's called Open. Thanks for listening. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Mm-hmm.